Happy New Year, listeners. We've made it to 2023. Uh, this is Mike over here, and who, who's that guy? Oh, this handsome one over here. This is Russ. Yeah, that one. Yeah, with my yeah, radio face. Of, <laughs> yeah, speaking of handsome, it's really a shame that we're not on video today because uh, Russ is wearing a really styling shirt, I have to say. Uh, I wish you could all see this, but I'm kind of glad you can't see me because I just have my normal schleppy clothes on, you know, <laughs> like 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 I'm a 20th century composer. <laughs> but you're going out on the town tonight. Yeah, I'll, I'll change my shirt before I oh, go okay. out, though. Yeah, this one's uh, a bit more colorful than I usually right. am, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I look like a tropical fish in a way, maybe. In a way, yeah, but yeah. A, a really um, kind of dark-toned one. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad like, you like it. Yeah. So anyway, I've been um, waiting for this day, this new year, January 1st. We are recording on January 1st. That's right. I, you know, just to let people know. And I've been sitting on this bottle of Knob Creek uh, Single oh. Barrel Reserve nine year for weeks now because these are getting harder to find in Japan. I think they may have, they may not. This may be my last ever bottle. I don't really know. So here it is. I'm going to open it right now. And, don't worry uh, because I've got four bottles now. Oh, God. <laughs> I just got uh, this one. Now, I made the mistake of, I was going to open this on the air here, but while, while we're recording. It can be tricky to open. Yeah, this thing, because it's got this little kind of tab on the end here, but it doesn't yeah. it doesn't want to come off this waxy uh, top. It's kind of sliding out of my fingers here. Oh, terrible. Well, what you oh, do here it goes. Woo. Yeah, go ahead. I was down in Osaka. And oh, really? And I went to one of the best bourbon bars, some say, in the world. Uh, where there's a lot of very rare bourbons. Uh, I had a old Ezra 15 year, I think, uh, that mm -hmm. hasn't been around for a Here while. You can, you can, oh, there goes the cork. Yeah. Go. You can get a bottle of it on Rakuten <laughs> now. It costs about uh, 400 US dollars. Uh, so I treated myself to a shot of that. And he also had a very rare old wild turkey. I think mm. a 13 year and some other very, very rare uh, bourbons. And when I asked him about Knob Creek, he said uh, he believes that we won't be able to get it anymore. So no. Anyway, let's let's do the uh, first bourbon pour of the new year. Now, this is not the I don't know if you could hear that, listeners. This is not the first pour of the new year, sadly, <laughs> because I because I had champagne for breakfast today. <laughs> oh, jeez, <laughs> You're a lush over there. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you have to start the new year in the most decadent way possible. So. Yeah. <laughs> Had it in a nice uh, champagne flute. I felt uh, it. Oh, you nice. know, alcohol in the morning is not a good thing. <laughs> I had a couple I, of shrines I don't recommend it. on a walk uh, today. And mm. sometimes they have the uh, sake out uh, for a right. New Year's toast, but they didn't. So They're really into alcohol here in Japan. They, uh, yeah. You know, it's like part that. of the whole um, the whole shrine kind of religion thing too, like yeah. uh, sake, nihon shu, what they what they call nihon shu. Yeah, there's never uh, you're never too far from a good uh, drink when you're in Japan. Uh, yeah, maybe that's why I stayed all these years. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> anyway, cheers to the new year. Yeah, here we go. Great. Cheers. Mm. The music stores are that great here, both for instruments and uh, if you want to buy new or used recordings, uh, some good stuff uh, to check out. Two things about Japan. I want to say one more thing. Um, Tower Records, American listeners, still exists here. Right. <laughs> Which is wonderful. So I like going in there. Yeah. I feel like it's still the 1990s sometimes, you know. I was down in the Disc mm. Union store when I was in Osaka, too. And both mm. they have a classical side and uh, then they have uh, jazz and other music. But in the classical side, they had a whole wall of used super audio discs as well. Yeah. So 
Uh, you won't find that uh, in most other countries. They're really into, you know, the, the whole, this whole Knob Creek thing too. This is a mm. bottle of uh, this that you can't get in the United States, even though it's an American, yeah. you know, sort of <laughs> drink, you know, bourbon uh, made in Kentucky. But they, they're really very alcohol connoisseurs here. So they get mm. special things all the time. If you're if you're planning a trip to Japan and you and you like alcohol, this is actually a good place to explore. <laughs> it's right. for the for that. Well, here we are on episode ninety six, getting close to one hundred. Actually, we've already got a hundred over a hundred, including our interviews. We got the little badge from right. Podbean, oh, that's cool. But we won't count it officially till we get to one hundred. And yeah. before we get into this episode's music, I want to just remind everyone, and if we have any new listeners, that you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to discuss in the episode description. Also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the recordings in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform from France. You can also listen to the podcast on Deezer, as well as almost every other platform. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. And if you can't see the full description or the links don't work on uh, whatever app you're listening to us on, you can always come over and check out our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow and well-organized there. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow, subscribe, wherever you listen to us, and tell a friend. If you have any uh, yeah. music friends, so that's one way we can get more listeners. If you give us a ranking or write a review, that will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and that helps us grow our audience. We were back in the Apple Music commentary that's list good. this week, so hopefully we got some new listeners from that. And you can also follow us on Facebook. We've got a page over there. Get some extra info and which, uh, new which releases. I will be. Yeah, which I will be uh, contributing to more this year. That's my New Year's resolution. Because yeah. there's been a lot of jazz up there and not enough classical as far as I... That's because of me, really. <laughs> I haven't been putting any classical up. Yeah, but I try to I'll, get... I'll start uh, doing that. Almost every day, if I find something new that I think uh, people that's want good. to hear I'll, right I'll away. give that a shot. I don't think I can do every day. I'll, I'll, my, my resolution will be three times a week, okay? Oh, that's good. At least three posts a week, okay? Yeah, and you can... Uh, Leave a message or comment on Facebook there. Or if you want to get in touch directly, you can uh, send us an email message. Our address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, and we'd be happy to hear from you. We're also yeah. uh, cooperating with a few other music podcasts that we'd like to recommend. I'll put the links for them at the bottom of the description and their little promo clips at the end of the podcast. That's Tom Gauker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz blues and R&B interview podcast. We've got Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. Well, this one's about uh, jazz standards with snippets from different versions discussing uh the original and the different versions, and also famous interviews in Neon Jazz by Joe Domino. He interviews musicians, artists, and writers. So if you want to expand your podcast listening, please do check those other podcasts out. Okay. Happy New Year to all of those podcasts and yes. podcasters too, and their listeners as well. I want to mention, in our first year of existence, 2021, um, we had 5,275 downloads. And I played that number in the Japanese lottery, and I'm so sad to say it didn't come out. <laughs> so I just, it was a complete bust. Anyway, this year, I kind of checked again, and we had a total, just for, from, from January until first 2022 until today, hmm. 8,353 downloads. So I'm going to be playing that number in the lottery. So I'd like to ask listeners, please uh, tell your friends about this podcast so that we can get more than 10,000 listeners 
10,000 downloads this year so that I don't have to play the lottery anymore because it's expensive <laughs> and I'm just tired of losing. <laughs> but I feel obligated to do it, so. You never know when your luck will come through. If anyone knows any way to manipulate the numbers in the Japanese lottery, <laughs> feel free to do so. My number is 8353, and I deserve to win. <laughs> so there you go. I deserve a break here. Don't we all? Anyway. Yes. Feeling in good spirits, uh, you know, helped a bit by the free-flowing alcohol of the last two days. But um, let's get into today's um, program. Now, in classical music, I've chosen three uh, composers that everyone will know for a change, and uh, oh. maybe people will be um, yeah. pleased by that. I think part, I feel like part of the reason we do this podcast, or at least I want to do it, is to introduce people to new composers they may not have heard of, and especially contemporary ones, so that we understand that your classical music is still going on, even, right. it's, even though it's not like moving the culture like it did in, say, the 18th and 19th and really early 20th centuries. You know, since World War II, it's just kind of become an, an art form that's kind of for mm. just people who happen to be listening to it. Anyway, going back into the past today a little bit, we're going to go back to the uh, 18th century. I'm not going to do a Baroque one. We're going to go into the classical era. The three big composers from that era, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven. Beethoven kind of straddles the classical and romantic. And in fact, um, Robert Greenberg suggests that the time Beethoven is alive, um, it shouldn't really be called classical or romantic. It should just be called the Beethoven era because he was so dominant, <laughs> you know, as mm. on, on on everybody really as a composer because people like were kind of following what he did, his contemporaries right. were listening to what he did and kind of had their own take on it. Anyway, we're going to start with Haydn, Josef Haydn, uh, the composer that I would most like to meet from history because he seems like a really nice guy. The, the rest of them <laughs> seem like a bunch of lunatics. <laughs> See, this is the thing about art and artists. We should be happy that the art survives and maybe the art and the artists don't because the art is a lot better than the artist is. <laughs> They, they put times, the best yes. of themselves and the best of all of us really in their art, but a, a lot of times they're pretty miserable people. <laughs> but and Haydn was the exception to the rule, though. He seems like a genuinely nice man. All of his musicians liked him, and uh, the ladies liked him too. When he went to London towards the end of his oh. career, he was always invited to people's houses, and who knows what he got up to there. Anyway, he had a good sense of humor. You hear it a lot in his um, music as well. The album we're talking about today is uh, Symphonies Six, Le Matin, Seven, Le Midi. And eight, le soir, and these are all times of day, uh, morning, afternoon, evening. These three symphonies named after the times of day. This is uh, performed by Florilegium, who are directed by Ashley Solomon, who plays the flute. Um, they are a British period instrument ensemble. They started in 1991. Wow. Yeah, so they've been around for a long time. And I've heard a lot of Rachel Podger was involved with them long ago, too. She's since been on her own. But Ashley Solomon, too, I remember some pretty great uh, flute concerto uh, albums mm -hmm. of box music by him as well. But he's still, um, he's been directing them for quite a long time. This is on the Channel Classics label, which is also a British label. Yeah, this is a really great sounding recording. I was listening to it again today because yeah. uh, it's period instruments, but they sound so, you know, smooth and... Um, yeah comfortable to listen to i kind of chose this one too for specifically for today for new year's day because the first symphony is you know the morning and mm -hmm. uh you know new year's day morning in japan is a really big deal a lot of people get up early to watch the sunrise it's sort of a tradition in japan like they'll get up and they'll some of them will even climb this uh, mountain by my house and kind of 
see it come up. And people even climb Mount Fuji or, or, or camp out on Mount Fuji so they could see the first um, uh, sunrise of the year. That's a little too much for me. <laughs> I've never done that. But um, so I just want, I thought this would be kind of a nice sort of, you know. Yeah. Sort of marker for the new year. Anyway, let's talk about these. Now, if you know anything about Haydn, you know he composed, um, his, his symphonies are numbered up to 104. Now, um, he so he... He didn't quite compose 104 symphonies. Um, since they've been numbered, a lot of them have been discovered to have been by someone else. You know, when they thought they were him, by him. But nevertheless, there are a lot. He worked for the Esterhaza family and had to come out with something for the uh, the house orchestra probably every week, sort of like Bach did with cantatas for the church when he was alive. Anyway, these are really early symphonies. They were all composed in 1761. Mozart was five years old at the time. All right, oh. so Haydn's pretty much, you know, on his own here as the as the the big guy. Except that he was really wasn't really known at the time because hmm. he was in the employ of the Esterhaza family. They are not narrative program music in the style of Vivaldi, so we shouldn't really think of that. And uh, Le Matin, the uh, morning, and the finale of Le Soir, the evening, include uh, tone painting, but um, they shouldn't really be thought of as works that are like that. All three works shine the spotlight on orchestral soloists in a similar way to the contratante or re-piano style that was so prevalent in Italy in the early part of the 18th century. So they owe something to Corelli's Concerti Grossi. This is really interesting. At this point, uh, Haydn was a new composer for the um, Esterhazy family. These are early symphonies. And of course, you have to ingratiate yourself to the musicians because you're living with them <laughs> at this time. It's it's not as though you're going to work every day you know, from your house. They're all living in the same kind of place, basically, mm-hmm. and they had to play when they were summoned. And so Haydn wanted to ingratiate himself to the, the orchestral players. The prince, one of the um, benefits he gave his musicians is that if they had a solo in the work they were playing, they would be paid extra. So mm-hmm. Haydn, to make them all happy, gave them a lot of solo lines. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like, if you think about it, Dickens being paid by the page to write his books so he wrote really long books so he'd get a lot of money um so haydn was very generous in this way and of course his musicians loved him he was a nice guy and they made more money because of him he gave them all little solo parts in this work so you'll hear a lot of solos um within this orchestral texture so you want to keep an ear out for that okay so there are prominent solos for the violin the cello the double bass which was a favorite instrument of haydn's and wind players including the bassoon which would have been unusual at the time um, there are so many solos for all the first-year players that they straddle the border between concerto and symphony, uh, falling into an updated classical genre, the sinfonia concertante. So if you hear that word, sinfonia concertante, it's like a symphony, and the concertante part means that there are a lot of solo parts, like a concerto, right? Okay, we don't know why these have the time-of-day theme, but there was a lot of material around at the time that had the same theme. And uh, perhaps the, the booklet suggests uh, Prince Esterhazy, who employed Haydn and the musicians suggested it to them. You know, give me something that has to do with the times of day. We don't really know, though. Anyway, getting on to the works. Tracks one through four, symphony number six in D major, Hoboken one, Roman numeral one, colon six, Le Matin. I wonder why he gave these um, French titles, too. I really yeah. don't know why, mm. but because he's in Austria. French was the big political language of the day, though, so mm-hmm. maybe. Anyway, he starts this with um, something we'll become more familiar with with Mozart, and Mozart probably got this from Haydn, um, the Adagio-Allegro. So the Adagio would be the introduction, the slow introduction, 
or actually so um works from the baroque era did this like the uh the french the french overture starts like this it'll usually start with a slow sort of entrance music and then followed by a vigorous fugue in this case though there's an allegro replacing the fugue so this starts with a slow introduction in the first movement limitan that is which haydn did a lot to solidify as traditional in the classical era we hear this a lot in mozart symphonies as well um, especially my favorite one, Symphony 38 by Mozart. Check that out. The Prague. Anyway, this Haydn work starts with tentative strings, then a pulsing rhythm, sounding like an indication of the sun rising. I can see that. This might be a little tone painting here. There's a pastoral feel to the heavy bass as well. So if the bass is droning, that'll give you the feeling of a musette or of like a rustic setting. Then we hear twittering flutes. Could be birds answered by the rest of the winds. Uh, this is the beginning of the Allegro, the main section, and the flute could be birdsong, as I said. The sun is up. Cheerful, classical-type approach to cadences. There's lively, positive energy to Florilegium's playing in this, and they capture the tempo and feel just right. And I have to tell you, I um, picked three albums today where I'm just going to say that again and again. Everything just feels so perfect about mm. these choices today. I really scored big here on uh, New Year's Day as far as music goes. There's lively positive energy, as I said. The sound quality of the album is on the dry side, but it's very clear and warm enough. Now, that's not a bad thing. We can, we can hear the detail. You don't get just a lot of that room ambience on this recording. Uh, brass instruments really blare when they're heard, and it's a satisfying period instrument way, so it's actually good. I, I rather <laughs> like that. There's a roughness to it that's really appealing. And, and in fact, for our sort of more uncultured ears those of us like me who grew up listening to rock and roll this is really one of the things that drew me to period instruments yeah just that the, the roughness of it you know the it's, french it's horns really have appealing. that gobble gobble turkey i like clucking that. yeah okay a lot of creative orchestration for the era here listen to this sudden pizzicati in the bass at around three minutes and 20 seconds by around three minutes and 30 seconds we're already back to the sonata's recapitulation this is a really quick movement the sections glide so smoothly into each other that on first listen, it's hard to pull out the divides. We were in the development section before I knew what was going on. Uh, no worries, though. It's a really short movement. Everything seems elated in a way. And in co of course, uh, Sonata form wasn't really set out as anything formal at the time. Uh, Haydn was really one of the ones who um, developed this form, and he was really working with it a lot. A lot of times, you know, Haydn work, you'll hear a theme and then instead of a second theme, he'll just have that original theme in the dominant key, meaning the fifth above the tonic mm -hmm. key, which would be the main home key of the work. Um, so Sonata was in flux here, but this is when it was a living, growing, changing thing. Um, this is a pretty brief movement for a Sonata form at 5 minutes and 57 seconds, and it's charming all the way through. Second movement, we get an adagio. Quiet, drawn-out tones, and the strings begin the work. It's a rising figure. A rustic-sounding solo violin is heard at 25 seconds or so, double-stopping his material. He has a solo line throughout, played without legato. It's a serene, calming melody, contentment and well-being at the beginning of the day. At a minute and 34 seconds, a new section starts. It's a bit quicker. The lack of vibrato gives the violin a rustic character throughout. Yeah, there's, no vi there's very little vibrato, if any. Uh, mm. Because this is a period instrument piece, and um, scholars tell us that uh, vibrato just wasn't used in the violin then. It became a big thing in the Romantic era, really. T to be honest, though, we really don't know, but that's what scholars are guessing here. 
At 3 minutes and 30 seconds, there's a call and answer section between the violin and solo cello. Remember, these are all solo lines. These guys are being well paid mm. <laughs> for this uh, back in the day. Uh, Haydn's musicians were paid extra, as I said, if they played solos. And Haydn, of course, added a good amount of solo moments in his uh, symphonies. There's a tiptoeing bass line for one section, making the rhythm stand out. At 6 minutes and 26 seconds, there's a nice false ending followed by two chords propelling the music into a coda with long bowed chords slowly leaning towards the final cadence. Florilegium, the ensemble, catch the humor in the false ending and change tack beautifully for the solemn chords that lead to the end. Okay, and this is really important. Classical musicians are, you know, they're trained in the um, conservatory and uh, sometimes you feel like they can have all the, all the humor or spontaneity trained out of them. I don't think that's really the case that much anymore. A lot of these um, ensembles are really good at capturing the humor in uh, this music. I was thinking also of um, last week I mentioned this with uh, Marc-Andre Amelin's CPE Bach recording where mm-hmm. he captures the, the humor in the pauses and the sudden changes and the, you know, things like that. Um, Flora and Legion are very good at this as well on this, on this performance. The third movement is a menuet. These are very traditional, and Haydn, in fact, did a lot to cement the use of the menuet and trio in classical symphonies. Beethoven would do away with these. He didn't like them. This one features a typical square menuet theme with a fluttering birdsong singing flute. The trio is more ominous. The trio is the middle section. It has a bassoon solo accompanied by a deep chugging bass rhythm. Uh, The middle section of the trio features a rising figure in the melody and a busier bass. Uh, this performance makes use of a lot of the timbres. Uh, the bassoon having great presence on the recording and a dark, reedy sound that's very satisfying. Uh, the way the bass figure is played has a lot of character as well. The louder, square a minuet then comes co- back and we get a repeat, complete with flute birdsong. Our fourth and final movement is an allegro. It's uplifting and cheerful, and it has an amusing, amusing sudden slowing at 45 seconds. I'm so excited by it, I couldn't say the word. It has a sudden slowing at 45 seconds, which it shrugs off comically and goes back to the fast material and a cadence. A little bit of humor there. There's a sudden change to the minor key at a minute and 55 seconds, the material rushing through different keys and finally settling on the opening key and the theme. Uh, This time we hear an explosion of brass, sounding like an excited flock of turkeys gobbling, as Russ (laughs) mentioned earlier. You can hear that at around the 2 minutes and 30 second mark. At 2 minutes and 55 seconds, we hear the slowing again, followed by the cadence. At 3 minutes and 16 seconds, there's a sudden shift back into the minor key, which I believe is a repeat of the B section material we just heard. And the opening material returns again after this, complete with brass turkeys, and we head to the cheerful ending cadence. This movement is uplifting, as is the entire work. And we're going to get into the other two works, and they're pretty uplifting too. Symphony number no. 7, The Afternoon, Le Midi, in C major. Hoboken Roman numeral 1, colon 7. Starts with another Adagio Allegro, so you have an introduction leading to a fast main section. Uh, this starts with a regal rhythm in the strings that fades to a staccato upward moving line, sort of like a tiptoeing away kind of sound. I always think of, when I hear those kind of things, I think of, you know, after Wally Coyote has had the anvil yeah. <laughs> dropped on his head, like, dum, 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 you hear the bass kind of pizzicato as he tiptoes away. Mm-hmm. I, I really do miss that in cartoons. Instead of having sound effects, you'll have like, Musical instruments kind yeah, of yeah. doing something to kind of indicate what's happening. I really love that. At a minute into the piece, the main section starts. Very quick introduction. It's mostly strings with quick bowing on the thematic lines. 
The cello gets a, nice, a few nice looks in this section, while the violins move up into a high range playing vibratoless as throughout this album. This is charming, as Haydn always is. The cadence isn't underlined, and we hear a repeat of the exposition. At around 3 minutes and 30 seconds, we leap into the development section, which features a lot of winding phrases in the strings, followed by strong accents in the wind and brass. There's a surprising shift at around the 4-minute mark to a new section, but we're not out of the development yet, nor are we at 4 minutes and 40 seconds, which features another harmonic surprise, leading into new material. There's a full stop at 5 minutes and 30 seconds, a false ending to the piece. It continues after a moment. At about 6 minutes, we seem to be in the recapitulation, but it's hard to say. The material isn't repeated directly in line with the opening. Again, this is sonata form in sort of being sort of developed as we hear it. But the melodies are familiar. The brass has that wild turkey gobbling sound. This is a movement full of harmonic surprises and startling twists and turns. The audience must have been delighted. Second movement is labeled recitativo adagio. Recitativo is um, the section in an opera, classical era opera, where the uh, singer is speaking while the harpsichord plays. He's kind of explaining his emotions before his aria in which he expresses them. Um, there are no singers in this movement, of course, but it means it's going to have that kind of speaking quality to it when we see this in a symphony. Um, the opening has a walking alone in the dark woods feel to it, a sense of ominousness. There's a harsh chord at 31 seconds that interrupts the forward movement of the harmony. Then we resume after a brief statement. Another interruption occurs at the 57 second mark, this time with a longer response from the violin with the orchestra supporting. You should notice the presence of a solo violin in this movement. Remember, he's getting paid <laughs> for his solo, <laughs> for be having a solo line in Haydn's day. The movement does have the feel of recitativo with chords in the orchestra underlining certain statements that the solo violin makes. At 2 minutes and 23 seconds, we get a cadence, then the aria apparently starts. The movement has a song-like operatic form. Twittering flutes are heard in the accompaniment as the violin is accompanied by a unison cello. The winds sound especially in bloom when they come in for their brief passages. They have a prolonged passage at 3 minutes and 40 seconds. There's a lot of material for the solo violin throughout the movement, with the cello peeking in at times. There's a sort of accompanied cadenza in the seventh minute that resolves into a duet with the cello. Nice resolve at the end. Third movement, menuet, traditional dance here. This is a menuet with a pretty heavy rhythm to it, uh, falling heavily on the beats. There's some appealing brass harmony from the period brass instruments. The menuet flows more at the 39 second mark. At a minute and 33 seconds, the gentler, more legato trio begins. It features the cello playing an upward line and taking an active part in the bass line. The brass complement his line, and the menuet is back at the three-minute mark. For the finale, fourth movement, it's allegro. It has a string melody with a lot of ornaments beginning the movement, after which a solo flute comes in with rapid, fluttering lines. In this movement, the flautist has the solos. I like his rapid, repeated notes at the end of his fluttering line. There's a beautiful full tone on what I think is a wooden flute. I think this is Ashley Solomon playing this, in fact, the director. Mm. By a minute and 50 seconds, we have slipped into a minor key, but by the two-minute mark, we're already out of it. This movement seems to be a sonata, as we have what seems to be a development section in the second and third minutes with several key changes. At around three minutes and 15 seconds, the opening material comes back as in a recapitulation, and we head pretty quickly to a satisfying final cadence. Uh, this work was far more inventive than the opening Symphony 6. It has a lot more 
to it. I guess because we've, we've had our coffee by now and it's afternoon <laughs> and we're full energy. Anyway, last work is Le Soir, Symphony Number no. 8. That is Hoboken, Roman numeral 1, colon, 8. This is in G major, the evening. The first movement is Allegro Molto. Starts with light dancing strings, followed by a louder answering phrase. It's in 6-8. It has a floating quality, and there's no introduction this time. We just go right into it. It's a little variety here. A typically charming Haydn theme is heard in this um, movement. Some of that period brass is thrown in for accents. At two minutes and three seconds, we get into the much more lightly scored development section with the same charming rhythmic bounce as the opening. There's some momentary forays into the minor keys, but we quickly come out of them. Incidentally, uh, two minutes is, is a really short time to have spent with the thematic <laughs> material. There, I don't think there was a repeat in this, but I didn't indicate it. The brass, when they are heard, make the crosses a hunting horn call. So the string theme could be thought of as a horse trotting. Uh, Haydn in this movement, as well as in the previous symphonies, is up to harmonic tricks to trick us into thinking the development is over when it's not. A shortened and slightly re rearranged recapitulation starts at 4 minutes and 10 seconds. A fantastic and emphatic false cadence is heard at 4 minutes and 48 seconds, which leads into a brief coda that brings us to the cadence. Florilegia makes sure we hear every harmonic sleight of hand and dissonance. It's a great performance, a charming movement. And it's full of like Haydn's, the, the sort of sense of humor that Haydn put in his um, works. He liked to subvert expectations a lot. He would have been a great uh, film director if he were alive now. <laughs> we're in the 20th century when film was good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, second movement, Andante. As with the adagios in the previous symphonies, the pacing and feel is perfectly caught here, as is the right touch pressure on the melodies. Very light. This is soft and elegant qualities we no longer hear in contemporary music. So you want to remember that part of your sort of persona, you know, mm. you got to listen to classical music for this, possibly jazz as well, but classical does elegant exceptionally well. Apparently it's still in us though, as the ensemble captures that feeling well. At a minute and 52 seconds, there's a solo violin note droning with no vibrato making it stand out. This is one of many ways that the ensemble used to bring out the details in the orchestration. At 2 minutes and 24 seconds, the beginning repeats, and at 4 minutes and 26 seconds, we get the next section opened by the lower strings for a contrasting sound. Then we seem to go right back to the opening, but not for long. There's some Haydn-esque harmonic sleight of hand that brings us to a more anxious-sounding harmony, which then goes through a long period of resolution. At 6 minutes and 26 seconds, we're back to the opening material, the A section. This is an ABA movement, so there's a middle section, and this ends calmly. The third movement is another minuet. This is also ABA. And a Boolean theme in the opening minuet is heard, uh, sounding like a standard dance in 3-4 time. The middle section of the minuet keeps the same tempo and volume, the contrast coming in the direction of the thematic material. At about a minute and 15 seconds, the trio section starts, more lightly scored, and a bit more legato, though it utilizes tiptoeing staccato bass at points. Mm. Think Wiley Coyote again which the uh, Florilegium uh, Ensemble characterized creatively. The main menuet returns at about 3 minutes and 38 seconds. The fourth movement is a bit of a tone painting. This is a La Tempesta, marked presto. Now, a tempest, of course, is a storm. This particular storm is nothing like uh, Beethoven's in his um, mm. pastoral symphony, which would come um, boy, almost 50 years later, I guess, or even you know, a little less than 50 years later. 1808. This is 1761. 
This has a light string figure bringing the feel of pattering rain opening the movement. There's also the wooden flute figure in the opening. The Tempest theme is there right from the beginning with quick tremolos and the strings giving the feeling of clouds about to burst. There's a pastoral dance quality in the material at 50 seconds. It may very well be a forerunner of Beethoven's storm movement in his sixth symphony. He uses a lot of um, this of similar effects to indicate the the coming of the storm, if not the storm itself. This storm is taking a long time to burst here, though, with the ominous tremolos building a lot of tension. At a minute and 50 seconds, there's a cadence, and we're off to a happier, fast dance. <laughs> I guess the storm went away. <laughs> Harmonic tension is built up by the repeating figures at the beginning of the second minute, after which the flute plays some chirping downward figures. There's another full cadence at around 3 minutes and 30 seconds, then a quick buildup of harmonic tension. We reach peak tension at around 3 minutes and 50 seconds. Then there's silence and the flute figure returns, calming things down. The movement ends on an emphatic cadence. I feel like this movement gives us the threat of a tempest without the actual storm, but perhaps I'm reading Beethoven's movement backwards into history in this one. Uh, the movement has its tense moments, but they're always taken away by something more cheerful. Anyway... As you might expect from Haydn, it's an enjoyable movement. And that's the album. And I have to say, I'm very impressed by how perfectly judged these performances are. They have all the humor offered by attention to sudden rhythmic stops and the drawing out of odd sounds that period instruments can make. The performances are all charming in every work. There's a rough edge to the sheen of the playing that makes it more enjoyable still. And I enjoyed this album immensely. I think it's a fantastic album to start your new year with. Yeah, I like this a lot. I said it was really classy. The thing that drew me into it, most of all, was these great timbres from the instruments. I just liked the sound yeah. a lot. I thought the performances are maybe a little bit restrained uh, in the approach to things, but not overly so. Very just, English. <laughs> yeah, just that um, they allowed me to really bathe in the rich sound. I never felt anything was hurried or you know, mm. sort of uh, too fast or uh, yeah, everything too dynamic really well. Just a totally rich and satisfying performance. And yeah, I enjoyed this uh, really a lot. I listened to it again today. I liked it so much. So I liked it so much too. Oh, I'm glad you had that to say because I just took a big gulp of my bourbon there and it just set my <laughs> chest on fire here. So <laughs> I had to recover from that. Okay, so our next album in classical music is... One of my favorite works, um, Schubert's Piano Trio Number no. 1 in B-flat major, opus 99, coupled with his Forellen Quintet, or the Trout Quintet, in A major, Deutsch's 667. This is performed by the Bush Trio. They are Matthew Van Bellen on violin, Ori Epstein on cello, and Omri Epstein on piano. And in the Forellen Quintet, we hear uh, Daniel Palmizio on the viola and Naomi Shayam on double bass. So this trio, the Bush Trio, is named after the violinist Adolf Bush. He was also a conductor and composer. And also after um, Matthew Van Bellen's violin, which is the ex-Adolf Bush, uh, G.P. Guadagnini, made in Turin in 1783. So they, mm. they called themselves the Bush after the violin, which Bush himself used, and uh, the uh, actual violinist himself. I love the Schubert Piano Trios. They're very long. But it's no great hardship listening to them at all. They're just so full of invention and wonderful melodies mm. that you never really get tired of them. I should mention the um, Bush Trio also recorded Piano Trio Number no. 2. Schubert wrote only two piano trios. 
And that was released in 2019, so you can go back and look that up too. That's another fantastic work and and a big contrast with this one, but still full of great melodies. I've never seen this combination before. Usually the um, the trout uh, quintet gets put on with you know something else, but I guess you just add two musicians to the uh, trio and you have you have this quintet. Mm-hmm. And they're two odd instruments too. The double bass usually isn't used in a in a quintet. Usually it's a cello, mm-hmm. but yeah, I guess um, Schubert wanted that. Well, he was writing specifically for uh, on request to a certain ensemble, which is why it has this odd instrumentation. Both of these are very sunny works. Again, a good way to start the new year in a positive way. Let's talk about Piano Trio Number 1 in B-flat major, Opus 99, Deutsche 898. This was possibly composed in 1828 or finished then. That's the year Schubert died, by the way. I believe he was 31 years old. Mm. Incidentally, we've been seeing a lot of um, Schubert recordings coming out last year. I think because it's the 225th anniversary of his birth. Now, he died, as I said, in 1828, so we can expect another um, big festival in five years or so. But there have been a real deluge of um, Schubert recordings this year. Anyway, first movement of the Piano Trio number 1, Allegro Moderato. It starts in bright-sounding B-flat major. The recording is good, and the trio format does a lot for transparency here. Uh, The theme has a lot of scale-climbing motifs. You'll notice this almost right away. I was very impressed with the velvety tone that Bellin achieves at a minute and 42 seconds when his theme comes in solo. He sounds like an old school violinist, maybe like Adolf Busch himself there. There are also a lot of um, hesitant pauses in this movement as though indecisive about where to go next. This is written into the score. Uh, Then spontaneously deciding on a direction. We hear the velvety violin tone again at 5 minutes and 35 seconds when the material repeats. We get a full exposition repeat in this movement, (laughs) of this very long movement, really. Mm. At 6 minutes and 57 seconds, the development starts very slowly and quietly, feeling out new harmonies and expanding into them. It seems to me the Bush Trio shape all of these lines perfectly to register the emotions contained therein and pace the work perfectly as well. I really enjoyed this a lot. It's an excellent performance. The balance between the instruments is also excellent. Toward the end of the ninth minute, or at 10 minutes and 42, it's hard to say which, because the material at uh, the 10 minute mark could just be embellishment of the theme. Uh, The recapitulation of the opening material quietly starts. At 13 minutes and 10 seconds, a brief coda starts that brings us to the build-up to the final cadence. We briefly hear the material from the opening theme again before the final cadence is hammered out. Now, I just breezed through this long movement. There are a lot of fantastic melodic moments in them, and it would take a long time to indicate them all. But I would say just listen to this and enjoy it as I know you will. Second movement, Andante un poco mosso. This is really one of Schubert's greatest melodies. Um, There's a thoughtful melancholic opening, and it's played gently by the cello and bass. Uh, Rather surprised when the violin comes in at 53 seconds to find that we've been hearing the cello in a high voice. This is something about recordings. You know, you you can't really identify the instruments right away, but if you were actually watching this, you'd know who was playing. (laughs) Pacing is perfectly judged to capture the movement's emotional quality. This is a comment I'm going to make throughout, really. The tempo gives a lingering quality to the music. There are dramatic outbursts by the fifth minute, but all calms down quickly with soothing sweeps of bows over strings. I especially like the piano's muted sound at around the five minutes and 50 second mark as a new arrangement of the melodic material comes in. 
There are a lot of subtle shading moments by all members of the trio in this movement and in the work in general. Um, the themes remain light and have a gorgeous floating quality to them in the strings. Third movement, Scherzo Allegro. Again, impressed by how precisely the tempo is realized to squeeze out the entire feeling of the material. In this movement, the uh, mood uh, contrasts with the previous Andante. It's more of a chipper feeling, not too lively, but enough to give a lively feel. Uh, the trio section starts just at the start of the third minute, featuring two staccato chords, followed by a rest in the piano accompaniment, with flowing themes in the strings. At 4 minutes and 45 seconds, the trio material peters out without a cadence, and we're back to the opening menuet. The fourth movement, Rondo, I, I kind of found this a little hard to follow, actually, labeled Allegro Vivace. Schubert calls this a Rondo, but it comes across as something more complicated than that, relying on contrast between the sunny, flowing opening theme and loud staccato outbursts from the piano in between. It's more like a sonata Rondo, but I can't really tell if it's an actual sonata being you know, hmm. yeah, exposed in there. Uh, the Rondo theme comes skipping in happily and suddenly with a light, naive energy provided by the tempo. The first departure from the Rondo is emphatically played, then a hazy, muted theme follows. The variations on the Rondo theme have the feel of an Austrian folk dance. We hear the light, loud outbursts interrupting the flow at each departure from the Rondo theme, but calm always returns. The material is all based on contrast, quiet, melodic sections versus sharp, disconnected outbursts. The themes dissipate at the end and reach a very emphatic, hammered-out final cadence, as in the first movement. This is a really fantastic performance of this work. My favorite has always been the Floristan trios on um, the Hyperion label from way back in uh, 2000s or the 1990s even. I don't remember when it was. I've been listening to that one forever, but now I've got this one, so I might uh, hmm. update. We'll have to see. Then we get um, the Trout Quintet. Uh, labeled here Forhellen Quintet, which is um, the German name. Forhellen is a trout. In A major, Deutsche 667, possibly written in 1819. This is called the Trout Quintet, incidentally, if anyone doesn't know, because the um, Schubert has a song called The Trout, Die Forhellen, for um, a singer and a pianist. And the uh, fourth movement, Thema con Variazione, is a variation on mm. that song. Um, so that's why his works get these odd names because he's doing a set of variations on one of his songs anyway but we'll get there in a moment this is also a very sunny work the first movement allegro vivace think about that um, marking there vivace lively and this has a surprisingly slowly taken opening with lingering string lines after the piano arpeggios usually it's faster i do like the droning bowed bass pinning everything down the bass adds a lot of richness to the lower mm. end of the piece, and it's well captured here, making its effects heard without being overly obtrusive. You almost don't hear the bass. You kind of sense that it's there. Unless, of course, you're listening as I was. I heard it when it came in. But it's really, yeah, it's really beautifully realized on this performance. The piece picks up energy and speed rather suddenly in the first minute, contrasting with the opening. I'm pretty sure that's an interpretational effect and not one from the score. The material flows beautifully, as was the case in the trio. At 4 minutes and 12 seconds, the opening repeats with its slower, melancholy opening. The approach to the cadence at the end of the section has a nice bounce to it. Uh, listen near the end of the sixth minute. There are a lot of slippery avoidances of the cadence until we finally reach the closing cadence at about 8 minutes and 20 seconds. 
At 8 minutes and 21 seconds, we get what is really a middle section. It's thinner, like a trio is. There's no development happening here, just new material in a minor key. By 9 minutes and 40 seconds, we start hearing familiar rhythmic patterns with the key constantly changing, aiming to get back to the opening A major, which is reached in a flourish at 10 minutes and 15 seconds, far more brightly played here than at the beginning, as though the opening cobwebs have been swept away and sunlight is now allowed in. This appearance of the theme has appealing, flowing energy to it, which continues right up to the energetic, satisfying final cadence. This is unusual, how the first movement is not a uh, sonata. Usually they are. I'm pretty sure it's not anyway. That's how I heard it. Anyway, the second movement, Andante, is a slower movement. It's got a gorgeous melodic opening with a double bass felt without having attention drawn to it. It's a very subtle performance of this movement. The theme consists a lot of trills, of a lot of trills by the pianist. In the first minute, we get into quick arpeggiated chords that lead to constant changes of key until we're in a minor key and hearing a theme in the low strings with the bass thumping out a bass line. The piano returns for more cheerful material, like a guiding light to the harmony. At 2 minutes and 57 seconds, the piano theme appears with a march rhythm in the strings, then suddenly resolves at 3 minutes and 20 seconds. A new section starts then with a quick dotted rhythm theme in the piano that's familiar from the opening. The harmonic lines in the strings are all beautifully blended and warm sounding. We get the familiar arpeggiated key changes until we reach stability with a string harmony theme with a quick repeating ta-ta in the violin now, at the top, just keeps repeating. The piano comes back and leads to the end after a brief harmonic details that really grab the ear. The final rhythm to the final cadence is the march rhythm we heard earlier. The third movement is a scherzo. It's presto. It ebulliently leaps out of the speakers. Watch the volume here after the previous movement. Uh, taken at an energetic yet not particularly quick tempo. There's a brief middle section. Then the ebullient theme comes back in this very brief movement. The fourth movement, tema con variazione, theme and variations. The theme is the trout, the song, the trout. This is a movement where the quintet gets its trout nickname from. The opening theme is, as often, taken more melodically and with less rhythmic bounce than it is in the song that it's named after. I guess here it's trying to pull out the harmonic materials. There's a contrast once the piano comes in at the one minute mark. The rhythm livens up a bit with the strings very subtly playing an accompaniment. The themes are sensitively shaped by the pianist. He pulls out subtler feelings than we generally get in this song. The low strings have the theme in the next variation, with the high strings creating an arabesque effect and the piano commenting. The next variation at about 3 minutes consists of rapid piano figuration with the strings chugging out the theme. At 3 minutes and 46 seconds, a loud emphatic variation is heard, especially in the piano. After that, the next variation is a slow, quietly played one in the strings with a floating quality to it. Uh, very light. At 6 minutes and 10 seconds or so, a lively, fast, but light variation is played by the violin and then passed on to the other strings as the piano plays the rippling arpeggios it has in the original song setting. The piece ends with a calm cadence after this. Yeah, the original song, the piano line, is a bunch of arpeggios that have like accents in them that sort of uh, indicate the, uh, the fish on the line kind of leaping out of the water or struggling to get free. And uh, here, that's kind of played down a bit, I guess, for the sake of the variations. But that's what I got out of that. This has a fifth movement and the final one, the Allegro Giusto. It's an appealing Austrian dance-like theme 
and it serves as what sounds like it's going to be a rondo theme, but really it's going to be more like an AB form repeated three times with varying orchestration and harmonization. Now, please, I didn't study this score. I'm really going by my ears here, so this is not a scholarly uh, examination. Schubert excels at these types of themes. They can be heard in the final movements of all of his major chamber works, especially the, the string quintet in uh, C major, a work I, another work I really love. We get away from this theme in the first minute, and the material gets passed on to various contrasting textures. At a minute and 56 seconds, we get reminiscences of the previous trout movement in the piano arpeggios. You know, one unexpected episode follows another unexpected episode up to a cadence at three minutes and eight seconds. And then we finally hear the opening rondo theme again, but not exactly as we heard it the first time. We go through a lot of similar material again from the B section in what is effectively the C section. I, I wanted to change this instead of A, B, C, D sections. I want to say it's B1, A, B2, A, B3, because they keep it's really the same mm -hmm. material. It just keeps um, being reorchestrated. It proceeds differently each time you hear it, and more dramatically this time, the second time we hear it. I really like the way that the ensemble is making these works sound so fresh in these performances. At 6 minutes and 16 seconds, we're back to the opening dancing theme, continuing a bit differently in the piano this time. As we pass one more time through the colliding ideas of what um, this B2 section would be, the intensity builds further than it had in the previous two B sections. At the end of the movement, we don't get a repeat of the opening theme, just an emphatic cadence after all of these pieces. We get the cadence on the B theme. Anyway, after all this, it's a very long album. It kind of goes up to 82 minutes, I believe. I'm left feeling elated after these performances. I feel like they capture the mood of the works perfectly in every way. Tempos are perfectly judged. Ensemble is well captured on the recording. Even better, by the way, than in their uh, recording of the Piano Trio Number 2, which had a lot more sort of room uh, reverb on it. Here, transparency allows us to hear all of the voices without singling any of them out. The quintet is especially well recorded with the bass registering almost, um, it just kind of filling out the bottom without drawing attention to itself. A really great performance by the uh, bass player. Both um, pieces come up sounding fresh and I was especially impressed by the whole sound you know, of that quintet. I want to give the bass player another shout out, Naomi Shayam on the double bass. So there you have it. A great recording. Again, another great New Year's Day or New Year's Week listen. Or really, 2023 listening. <laughs> it's, this is a great album. I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, this was another really good pick. I noticed right away that I was going to like listening right to the end because I really enjoyed the sound of the violins on this recording. Sometimes violins mm. get on me with that kind of edgy tone that wears mm. me out. But the tone was really pleasing here despite the energetic kind of uh, playing. And so I really was drawn into the sound and uh, timbres of the strings. And overall, I thought they did an excellent job in highlighting the contrasts in Schubert's movements. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sections that have great variety switching things, and they seem to just get all of those uh, things played really stylishly. And uh, as you say, the addition of the bass in uh, the quintet mm. gives this extra low end to listen to. I was drawn into all the different movements and uh, it's like you say, it's long, but it's really enjoyable to the end and uh, really good energetic performance. Very pleasing. I've heard this work before, but I don't think I've enjoyed it as much as I did uh, listening to this one. Right. I think, um, yeah. And this, what you said about length is going to really play into my, uh, my concluding comments after the, the classical music section. Mm. But yeah, these these works, they're inventive and they're 
catchy both and it's a great way to even get into classical music if you really want to expand your sort of um attention your attention you make it get a longer yeah. attention span so see, it's this is easy to great melodies the themes are just really yeah. uh, they stick with you and uh you know i think yeah. everyone will know that and what he theme. does with them too yeah but yeah. also the uh andante the second movement in the trio is also a, a great melody you don't have to be a seasoned classical listener to really appreciate these so yeah and in these performances yeah. too now you might have noticed that we started with Haydn, and then we've, we've got an Austrian theme going here. Or, you know, basically all three of these composers we're talking about worked in Austria. Two of them were actually Austrian, Schubert. And, actually, Schubert may have been German. I'm not really sure. And Haydn was Austrian. Yeah, Schubert was German. But they all worked in Vienna, as did our final composer, Mahler, Gustav Mahler. He was Bohemian from what is today the Czech Republic. We are hearing his Symphony Number no. 5 in C-sharp minor. This is the uh, performed by the Czech Philharmonic, conducted by Semyon Bishkov on the Pentatone label. Now, you might notice that I've kind of gone for, as these three um, composers, they're all later in time than the previous, but they're all sort of building on each other, and their movements are getting longer and longer until here <laughs> we are at really maximum length in Mahler. So these, this music expands as it goes. This is a, a single symphony. It's about... Here it's 70 minutes long. It could be longer in some performances, but this one's pretty quickly taken. This particular um, symphony, number five, is uh, a darkness to light symphony, uh, beginning with a funeral march and ending 70 plus minutes later with a blaze of D major sunshine. Unlike the first or fourth symphonies of Mahler, uh, the path to light is less sure in this one, but we do get there. Don't worry. The vistas along the way are so heterogeneous, so rich in polyphony, that shadows constantly impinge. Anyway, this is a five-movement work, and if you want to kind of put it in some kind of a, a form that's going to help you uh, get through it, you could think of the first... It's actually in three parts. Um, he's labeled this in three parts, even though there are five movements. Part one is the first and second movements, and they're both they're all dark and uh, deal with like death and a funeral march. The third movement is sort of like the... This is part two is the fulcrum on which the um, darkness turns to light. And the fourth and fifth movements are the lighter movements. And they're also labeled as part three. Anyway, let's talk about this performance. It's kind of interesting. First movement labeled Trauer Marsch, which is a funeral march. In gemessenem Schritt streng wie ein Kondukt. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, those are directions for the uh, speed. Part one of this, this is part one of the symphony. Um, the opening fanfare was described by Mahler as Der Kleine Apple, or the little summons. It is a motif of, ex of ascent and was first briefly heard buried in the texture of the previous fourth symphony. All of Mahler's symphonies connect. They're all sort of like this big giant story of his, um, I guess, life in a way. They're, they're sort of autobiographical. No one has really exposed more about his, his himself and his... Um, foibles and weaknesses than Mahler has in music. And I think that's one of the things that people um, like about it is it's just brutal honesty, <laughs> especially now <laughs> when nothing we get on the internet is seems to be honest at all. Well, that's what music is for, the remedy for that. Anyway, at the beginning, the horn theme is played emphatically with aggression. Uh, the orchestra really blazes in when it's first heard at the 39 second mark. Uh, watch those um, speaker volumes. Unless you want your neighbors coming over and complaining. It's got a plush sound, clear, spacious, present, and ominous. Bichkov and the um, 
check Philharmonic, make every note register. And that's saying something in a score as complex as Mahler's. He used a gigantic orchestra in all of his um, symphonies. The tempo for this, the thing that really captured me about this entire performance of all five movements is the tempo is always on the quick side, but it's not particularly fast. All of the um, brief crescendos are crisply taken, and crisp is a good word to use in describing the entire sound of this performance. It's a pretty remarkable recording. The brass absolutely blazing out of the speaker. Mm. Uh, the soft sections have taut rhythms. Uh, nothing is sagging at all throughout the 70 minutes of this work. Even in the quiet section, we're on a way to somewhere. A big character change occurs at the 5 minute and 30 second mark as the rhythm starts rushing with a carnivalesque feel, uh, quickly morphing into chaos and anxiety. I want to mention something about Mahler's music. Whenever you hear something sounding like a carnival or circus music or even Jewish klezmer music, it's all popular music and he uses it to usually, I guess, maybe always, to um, indicate some sort of um, breakdown or some sort of um, moment of, you know, um, traumatic moment. What he's really saying, it's really interesting, and people pick up on this too. He's claiming that when we have something traumatic happen to us, that our mind sort of lets go into some sort of something more popular or empty or something that really sort of um, contrasts with what we're actually experiencing. And he uses these kind of popular forms to indicate some kind of trauma. And that would be what's happening here at 5 minutes and 30 seconds. The carnivalesque feel, and by 6 minutes and 55 seconds, we reach a climax of anxiety as a peak of a crescendo is reached and the string lines come soaring downward. The opening horn motif comes back here, and we're back to the ominous reality of the funeral march. The material from the opening, the exposition, is repeated here, though it's reorchestrated and reharmonized in subtle ways. I like the quiet timpani at 10 minutes, outlining the rhythm and the opening trumpet motif. After this, we hear a new rhythm for the funeral march melody that followed the trumpet motif. Here it's romanticized, no longer a march. The movement comes across as ominous and dark without the granitic, unmovable quality that older classical performances have. I'm thinking of Claudio Abado's recordings with the Berlin Philharmonic. I think that's a good thing, though. I mean, I wouldn't call this um, tempo fleet, but it's starting to lean towards fleetness. The second movement, Sturmische Bewegt. Before I get into this, one more thing about Mahler. There's always some kind of a funeral element to his um, works, and the reason for that is also autobiographical. He, A lot of his brothers and sisters died in their youth, some of them like just after they were born. So... Um, he had a lot of experience with death and funerals in his childhood, and it apparently followed him into his life. He kind of saw that as, um, mm. I think he's working out that trauma in a lot of his um, works, and including here. So the second movement, Sturmische Bewegt mit Grosse Vehemens, vehement, right? Mahler said that the funeral march first movement was really an introduction to this, the true first movement. So you could think of that entire first long first movement as just an introduction. This second movement features angry recriminations and music of aching sincerity in the strings alone, which tell us that grieving may never be done. <laughs> oh, man. Not what I want to hear. <laughs> but actually, we'll find out that well, maybe it won't be done, but there is uh, a respite from it in this particular work. Six months before Mahler had written these movements, he had suffered a near-fatal hemorrhage requiring an operation at the Louvre Sanatorium in Vienna. 
Within the melee of this movement, an olive branch is raised, a breakthrough. It's in D major, and you can recognize it by the harp glissandos. I'll tell you when it comes up. And confirmatory rumble from the timpani. Its theme is a boldly ascending chorale. A chorale is chords, often that are sung in church, so they have this holy quality to them. Um, when you hear them, you should really learn, if you listen to classical music, you should really learn to identify those because it indicates something extra musical. Uh, victory proves premature, though, and the facade crashes down. But don't worry, though, that chorale will come back at the end of the symphony. The ominousness of the opening is caught well. It's not as histrionic as older classic recordings. The form is kind of coming through more here as... Uh, it is in the opening movement. I think of like Bernstein's recording of this, which as you can imagine, if you know anything about Bernstein's conducting, is extremely histrionic. He really <laughs> wanted to push the emotions across. He was very flashy that way. This is slightly faster than usual, as is the entire symphony really. But again, not particularly fast. Lots of detail, peeks through the texture in this impressively clear recording with Bichkov etching the thematic material deeply into the brain. At a minute and 25 seconds, we get a repeating wind motif as the cellos play the next grief-stricken theme. By the way, don't let all this grief put you off. This is really <laughs> going to be a, a good journey that to go on, especially when we get to the fourth movement. At three minutes and 40 seconds, the angry outbursts of the opening return. The speed of the movement and tautness of the rhythm makes the form of the movement easy to follow. A lot of times when composers will, or when conductors, however, someone like, uh, especially Bernstein, but a Botto too, would like linger on these um, emotional things. We can lose track of the form of the movement. And I think we feel a bit lost when we don't know what that is. Uh, this might be a good performance for new listeners to hear for that reason. Already at four minutes and 40 seconds, we're back to the quieter weeping cellos. Now, yeah, the reason I think this would be a good um, performance for new listeners to hear is because the form is so clear. So we kind of don't really feel like we're getting lost in the whole orchestration. Okay, so the section we're in at 4 minutes and 40 seconds, the weeping cellos continues with the repeating wind motif back, all slightly reharmonized and paced slightly differently. I love the subtle muted trumpets at 6 minutes and 30 seconds. They just peek out of the texture in the left speaker. At 8 minutes and 22 seconds, the rhythm suddenly picks up, and the short motivic themes climb until we reach a positive blaze at about 8 minutes and 40 seconds, punctuated by the anxious opening material of the movement. There's a struggle going on here as something tries to break free of the anger and grief we've heard so far. We reach something calmer at 9 minutes and 50 seconds. There's a dynamic climax at around 10 minutes and 20 seconds. And we're back in dark, lamenting spaces. Another positive blaze at 12 minutes and 20 seconds with the harp heard. And a triumphant theme in the brass. This one is free of any grief. It's all light, but already starts to falter at 13 minutes and 7 seconds, despite reaching higher still. It's a remarkable moment and is well captured here in the brightness of the sound. The anxiety returns quickly, however. At 13 minutes and 45 seconds, we have anxiety again, and we head to the end rather disappointed that the breakthrough wasn't permanent. But we've seen the light, and that will inspire us onward. It happened and won't be forgotten by us or by Mahler. As the symphony goes on, we actually hear a glimmer of it at 14 minutes and 45 seconds. The griefing motifs come back, but they're fainter now, though still there. Okay, so you want to notice the 12 minute and 20 second mark, the, the harp indicating the, um, the, the, the positivity. So we have this moment of breakthrough, but then we're just pulled back down into the depths and we're trying to get out of that. So we've had that 
that vision sort of. And I think a lot of us in life, of if, if we're adults by now, for getting towards the end of our <laughs> towards the the second half of our lives, let's say, have probably had experiences like this where you just see this light when you're in this place of darkness and you just you know that it, everything is going to be okay in the end, even though it's not good now. And that's the uh, quality that Mahler is putting across there, I think. Okay, so the third movement is a scherzo. That's like, it means joke. Uh, Mart kräftig nicht zu schnell. This is the uh, fulcrum where the darkness of this symphony kind of teeters towards the light. There's a gulf between its mood and what has gone before. The funeral drama is forgotten. And D major, often Mahler's goal in previous symphonies, is restored. By the way, D major was um, the uh, key we heard in the, at the 12 minute and 22nd mark of the previous movement, the positive blaze. Uh, the rallying between an obligato horn and its counterparts within the main body of the orchestra imply an alpine landscape. So the outdoors as sort of healing. A lot of uh, composers such as Beethoven uh, really thought of the outdoors as being some positive healing force on us. Maybe um, people who are constantly on their phones today <laughs> would do well to uh, pick up on that uh, idea. Get out into the woods and hug a tree, all right? I think it'll be good for you. Okay. The uh, mood is much happier and even playful at the beginning. The conductor, Bichkov, manages to make this material seem completely separated from what we've heard in the previous two movements. Well, Mahler does this through his orchestration, but Bischkoff really highlights it with the uplift in the rhythm and the brightness of his orchestra, the Czech Philharmonic. This movement continues the slightly faster tempo we've heard from the beginning, and it pays off here, lifting this movement to a more cheerful profile. There's something of the outdoors and open nature in the chirping of the woodwinds and the swaying of the string lines. A contrast occurs at 2 minutes and 40 seconds as the strings take over at a quieter dynamic. Suddenly, at 3 minutes and 32 seconds, we're back to the opening thematic material, and I won't say theme, because there are a lot of them playing at the same time, giving the feeling of a summing of sounds when one is in nature. I kind of thought of, um, we did the uh, Caroline Shaw recording mm -hmm. um, two weeks ago, and there was a, a movement she did where she was, it was in the, the woods, and you heard like the birds coming from different you know, elements of the uh, ensemble. Uh, you get a more sort of um, involved version of that here. There's a bit of darkness in this section, perhaps a memory of the first two movements, whose mood is now at a distance. At 6 minutes and 58 seconds, a pizzicato section begins in the strings, sounding guitar-like in its articulation. Winds take over, then bowed strings smooth the theme out. The muted trumpet at 8 minutes and 50 seconds plays a swaying melody, sounding distant and ghostly, surely marked to sound like that by Mahler in the score. He's probably, apart from the ensemble, this particular instrument is probably in another room or distant from the rest of the orchestra to get that sound hmm. at 8 minutes 50 seconds, that the muted trumpet. The whole section has a melancholy to it, so we're not quite in a state of permanent sunlight. At 10 minutes, the strings try to dance their way out of the shadow, but anxiety quickly takes over and the material becomes manic in its striving. At 11 minutes and 5 seconds, we're suddenly at the carefree beginning of the movement again after a pause. The darkest section isn't worked through to the end. It's as though we've just put it out of mind. More serious-sounding shadows do intervene, but are quickly dispelled as the material struggles between cheerful dancing and ominous harmony in the 13th and 14th minutes. There's a fantastic orchestral outburst registering loudly on the recording at 15 minutes as the brass attempts to keep darker forces at bay with its calming fanfares. 
the ending of the movement is triumphant. Okay, we reach part three of the symphony with the fourth movement, Adagietto. Oh, the famous Mahler Adagietto. This is uh, probably the most famous movement, orchestral movement he composed in his life. It's really well known now. Mahler composed this uh, movement the year after the previous three movements. Instead of the outdoor setting of the third movement, we get an internalized and even domestic reflection on the rising textures we heard at the close of the second movement, the part where the breakthrough in anguish occurs at the 12 minute and 20 second mark. <laughs> I'm not reading that. I hope I'm remembering it well, but it's in the 12th minute. This music has a musical kinship with Mahler's setting of Friedrich Rückert's poem, Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen. And if you don't know that song, listen to it now. It's exceptionally beautiful as is this movement. This fourth movement unsettles the symphony's presumed philosophical course, which Mahler inherited from Beethoven and followed in his previous four symphonies. So this is a real turning point for Mahler's work in general and for this um, symphony in particular. People go to this movement first usually when they, uh, or, or only listen to this movement on its own. But I think you've got to earn this movement by listening to the first three. <laughs> Because it'll just register that much more deeply. Here, again, it's taken at a quicker tempo than usual. Um, and in fact, if you if you like the glowing quality that this movement has, I'd go to the Abado recording with the Berlin Philharmonic on this. It's really beautiful. This particular performance doesn't have the melting quality that Abado gets. But Bichkoff is not after that here. He's after something else. Rhythms are absolutely taut, as has been the case throughout the symphony. The accompanying harp is very present, and the shape of the melody, rather than the feel of the orchestration, is brought into the foreground by the quicker tempo. At 3 minutes and 24 seconds, we move to a new section with some pleading material supported by denser, darker harmony. Bichkoff makes this section rather dramatic with light, dynamic swells on accented notes. At 6 minutes and 10 seconds, we arrive back at the A section with the opening theme repeated with subtle rewritings of the melody and rhythm. So this is a little less meltingly romantic than we usually get this movement. But again, it's of a piece with what we've heard up to now and all throughout and really well integrated into this symphony in this performance. The fifth movement and final one, the Rondo Finale, marked Allegro, starts with a kind of horn sound in the early morning. The notes say a matinal horn. So maybe a horn at sunrise. You can imagine yourself in the countryside here. And a larky bassoon introduces strands from a song called Lob des Hohen Verstandes, a song concerning a pair of competitive birds. You can listen to that on your own. We're back in the open air with a breeze of D major, which is really the, um, the positive key of this symphony. The chorale theme we heard in the second movement is back without a shred of anxiety attached to it. It seems simple here and even naive. Um, if you think back to the fourth symphony, if you know this work, uh, the song of the child in heaven, it's got that naive quality here as well. But here there are no words, of course. Critics claim that the devastating struggles of the preceding movements still linger in the mind, despite the skies being clear for this movement. But the movement ends in happiness and light. And you, as the listener, are free to decide for yourself what you want it to be. Anyway, the quicker tempo has been consistent throughout the work, and this movement is also at a slightly faster pace than familiar older interpretations. The nature quality of the outdoors and bird twitterings come across well, as well as the early morning horn call that starts the work, indicating the outdoors and a wide open space. Spirits are the highest they've been in the work in this movement. 
At 2 minutes and 54 seconds, we're into a rustic theme with rough-hewn bass notes. We should also think about the countryside as being a place of happiness for people in the 19th century. They're away from their problems in their, I guess, their families or in their work or whatever. They really appreciated solitude in nature. It was a, it was a big thing with them. At 2 minutes and 54 seconds, we're into a rustic theme with rough-hewn bass notes. At 3 minutes and 30 seconds, the bass starts rushing as an outdoor horn call is sounded. The movement tends to be upward in this uh, movement, the movement of the uh, melodies, as it is in the strings in the fourth minute. I like the serene, thin string sound at 4 minutes and 45 seconds onwards. We go through more material of the same nature and reach that serene string sound again in the eighth minute. There's a big crescendo and upward reach in the ninth minute that brings us to an understated but warm theme at 9 minutes and 40 seconds. A sudden quietening from all the building up to climaxes occurs at around 11 minutes and 40 seconds. And from there, a new gradual crescendo builds, along with the harmonic tension, to a blazing brass line underpinned by rolling timpani and rushing strings in the 14th minute. We hear the chorale from the second movement here from 14 minutes and 40 seconds onwards as we rush towards the final sunny cadence impressively taken by the orchestra feeling exhilarating and we end in exhilaration. So this is a magnificent recording of a lively interpretation. The performance is of a piece accentuating the form of each movement through its taut rhythms and attention to the shape of the thematic lines. It tries to balance the intellectual, that is the form, and emotional, which is the shaping of lines and dynamics, qualities of the work, and errs toward the intellectual side, though it gets a lot of emotion in. It doesn't reach the hysterical points that, say, Bernstein puts across. This is not something fans of the Adagietto are going to be happy to hear, by the way. But the Adagietto is well integrated into this interpretation of the score. The entire gigantic work is easily digestible here, or more easily than it usually is. It's a sort of a complement to Abato's interpretation, where he balances the intellectual and emotional, but errs on the side of the emotional. This one kind of goes the other way. So anyway, my three albums on the classical um, end are all Austrian and uh, show, in a sense, they, these works all originated in Vienna or close to it and show the expansion of form over two centuries. So the Haydn works are a basic uh, length, the Schubert are longer and the Mahler are even longer still. So I think in programming these uh, three uh, symphonies, I hope that this year is one of expansion of happiness for you, as is the program. And I hope that any darkness that you have will end in light by December 31st, as Mahler's symphony does. So there's my theme for the new year. And you have three great new recordings to listen to. Oh, nice context, too. I'll put that into yeah. it there. Yeah, you did uh, pick a winner of a program this week. I enjoyed mm. all these a lot. And I like it this Mahler. It was pure luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a great performance. It's very dramatic, but it never gets out of hand. Right. Everything stays in control it doesn't get uh, histrionic right now i know some people prefer the histrionic approach to Mahler. no but, I, uh, I like this I one a lot i thought one. it was yeah. uh, just right and right from the opening trumpet you're going to get a lot of great brass from this uh check ensemble here that's what i was uh, enjoying most of all from the the trumpets with this kind of teutonic regal sound and then the real powerful low brass uh, all the way through uh, mm. i just thought it sounded solid and uh, the whole recording has a kind of burnished sound quality to it that yeah. uh, just really shines and yeah, it's a long work but again, the performance uh, just engaged me right through to the end. I've got 
a few recordings of these Mahler symphonies. Uh, and uh, sometimes I don't <laughs> want to listen to this one just because it's a, you know, I feel wiped out by the end of yeah, it. Yeah, uh, but I didn't feel that way here. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wasn't uh, overly emotional, as you said. It was just the yeah. right touch, and uh, you could focus more on the development of uh, the different sections. And I found myself relating more yeah. of uh, the elements that I heard in the composition right. than I usually do when I get just blown away by the dramatic interpretation of it. And so, right. yeah, really good uh, end to this program of classical music. Yeah, I want to say the Mahler Fifth Symphony too. It's a work, as really are all the Mahler symphonies, that really speaks to our rather anxious times. So you might mm. want to give it a listen. It might give you a little bit of a, a lift out of... Um, yeah. Any kind of anxiety that we're feeling now. I mean, you'll get to feel that anxiety in the piece at points, but he right. he kind of works you out of it through his um development of his themes yeah. and harmony. All right. It's jazz time. Yeah. And this week we've got a lot of sax. Uh, yeah. All sax, as a matter of fact. And uh, a lot of contrast in these three recordings here. And the first one is uh, really unique and uh, enjoyable in terms of the material. And uh, yeah, I, if anyone is a Generation Xer like we are, uh, mm. I think this one will be really interesting for you. Oh, yeah. You know, when we normally think of jazz and the jazz standard, the standards come from the American songbook. All those pop songs that came out of, you know, Broadway musicals and then movies you know, going from maybe the late 20s up until 50s, the rock and roll time. And those songs that came from Broadway musicals and appeared in movies, those were the pop songs of the day. And they sort of became, you know, part of the jazz standard repertoire. However, back in those days, those were the pop songs of the day, so everyone would know them. And now, you know, they're still played in jazz, but they come from time period before. Mm. And... Now, if you grew up in a later time, uh, the pop music that you grew up with, and sort of, at least with us, I'm sure, there's songs that are stuck in our brains forever, even if we don't mm -hmm. like them. <laughs> we know all the lyrics and everything. and uh, But those songs don't often get used, you know, as a sort of basis for jazz improvisations. But that's what's going to happen here on this yeah. recording by the Charles Owens Quartet. It's called Golden Moments. It's on... La Reserve Records uh, came out in November, November 11th. And Charles mm. Owens, I should say, there's another Charles Owens sax player uh, from a earlier generation born in 1939. His real name was Brown, and he played with hmm. uh, Buddy Rich and Mongo Santa Maria. But this is not that Charles Owens. This is uh, Charles Owens now, who's a little bit younger than me. I think he's 50. And so... No, that's old he, enough for this music yeah. <laughs> that he's and covering here. So he uh, attended the New School and worked as a musician in New York City from 1992 to 2004, but now he's based out of Richmond, Virginia. And I guess they've got a vibrant music scene there and also in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he does travel back and forth to New York a few times a year to still perform there. And he's played with, uh, let's see, Brad Meldahl, Mark Turner, uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Brian Blade, Peter Bernstein, uh, Alexander Claffey, who we heard a few weeks uh, ago on the podcast. And so mm. you'll see his name uh, with a lot of other big name jazz musicians as well. And so here he is with his group, also including Daniel Clark on piano. Uh, Owens plays tenor sax, 
by the way, I should mention, and Andrew Randazzo on bass, Brian Caputo on drums. Now, curiously, this uh, album was recorded to analog tape. It's not a digital recording, but it's mm-hmm. only available as a digital release <laughs> right now. There's no uh, physical media for this. So, it's yeah, kind of, uh, I, I do hope it. I would get a CD of this, which is would also be yeah. a digital recording, but even like a vinyl recording would be like you know right. as close as you can get to that. Now, to tape, uh, give you the idea of uh, what I'm talking about, uh, I'll, there's some on Bandcamp site. Uh, there's some of his uh, quotes about this. So this is his quote: uh, "This is me going back and exploring repertoire that meant a lot to me my whole life." Hmm. He says, uh, "People love these songs, and when I say people, I mean me too." Like I literally grew up with them and they have made an imprint on my psyche and an imprint on my heart. So when I play them, it feels so natural because it's been in my being for my whole life. And they've had this huge effect on me since I was literally a little kid, like close to even being a toddler. And so (laughs) being about the same age. Right. um, Me too. Yeah. I remember these songs from my youth as well. Yeah. And he says, uh, we would always do housework on Saturdays and we would have every radio in the house on the same station. So we'd be running around the house listening to the same thing, whatever room we were in. And we and, had that too. We had like yeah. an intercom that kind of played the same thing throughout the house. And so I really identified with this idea. And as mm-hmm. a matter of fact, I don't know if all countries do this, but in America, we have uh, the baby book, right? Parents, yeah. your mom keeps a book and it's got all of, you know, your uh, vaccinations and how much you yeah. grew and, you know, whatever yeah. you did. And yeah, you you're can, writing your name every year, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you, you record you know, the things, the first things your child says. So my first sentence that's recorded in my baby book is, Mommy, turn on the radio. <laughs> oh, good for <laughs> you. The first, my first sentence, you know, that's how I became a music lover. So I was always listening to the radio. And so a lot of these songs that uh, Charles Owens heard, I heard them too, and they were stuck in my head forever. Right. Mine too. Yeah, I remember a lot of these as well. And so we're going to get some unusual tunes in the jazz world here, starting right out with Super Tramp. Yeah. (laughs) 1979, uh, Breakfast in America. This was constantly on the radio. If you're Generation X, you grew up with this uh, Super Tramp, uh, Rick Davies and Roger Hodgson. Yeah, when it came out. Yeah, this is a great little version of this. And uh, it starts right out with Clark on a piano pounding out that opening uh, piano chords. You're going to you know, notice this right away uh, if you grew up during the 70s. And Owens takes the vocal melody. Uh, it's a nice heavy rock groove on the tune with Randazzo's bass locking in with the piano uh, that has a nice moving line below there. Uh, and what I like, you know, it's going on sounding like an instrumental version of us, but then they make this nice switch to swing uh, for the end of the verse on the lyrics. Uh, I'm hoping it's going to come true, but there's not a lot I can do. If you remember that lyric from the tune, it goes to swing there. Uh, then they go back to the rock beat for the next verse, and they do the swing switch again. They rock it through the kind of uh, instrumental part where the vocal is just ba-da-da-da, da-da-da. Hmm. And I think the original had a clarinet solo in it, actually. But uh, it's kind of a sassy sax falls from Owens there. Uh, bring it down soft and rubato at the end. Uh, with some nice chiming piano from Clark. Then uh, 
Caputo gets a solid groove with uh, sharp hits going for Owens' solo here. Uh, they keep the swing change-ups underneath, and Owens builds it nicely with bluesy lines, smearing phrases, and some really cool intense double-time phrases outside of the chord licks and a high cry in there as well. And Clark gets a kind of soft and dreamy but rhythmic start to his uh, piano solo, uh, but turns up the intensity after the first switch to swing, getting into some really enthusiastic rhythmic playing for a great solo. They run through another round of the verse and then jam out for a while over a riff for Caputo to get busy on the drums. And then Owens gets some more wailing in there as well. Uh, there's some great funky bass lines by Randazzo underneath too. And they finish it with the soft ending uh, from after the second verse, just like the original. So I thought I was hooked after this one. I said, okay, this is really uh, cool material to uh, do something with. Another song that was always on the radio uh, for track two, 1972, The Spinners. Uh, ah, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love? Uh, this yeah. was uh, written by songwriters uh, Melvin and Mervyn Steeles. Uh, I don't think they were part of The Spinners, though. And so Clark plays a 10-bar intro here uh, with the famous phrase, this kind of ascending line that's the hook of the tune. Chords, it's tasty and snappy, answering phrases to himself there. And Caputo has a tight hi-hat and cymbals going, and Randazzo deep ringing bass, and Owens takes the melody, and they have a nice breezy feel going to this tune. Listen to the snappy bass lines of Randazzo underneath. Owens pushes it up on the chorus, you know, the, could it be I'm falling in love? You know, the, yeah. the sax has this real rising with answering phrases from Clark there too. And they take it down easy into the second verse. And I like how they switch up the chorus the next time with Clark taking the main melody of the could it be part because if you remember that you know it's locked in my head he's a witch a baby <laughs> this is yeah. like answering line so um, Owens takes that kind of answer line on the sax and give me a little smile uh, Clark has a solo next super snappy rhythmic but flowing lines and then hammering chords and Owen starts it really smooth for his soul, but gets down in the lower register. He makes his line snap to the groove, gets more jazzy, and then some kind of R&B-influenced uh, sax playing as he goes on. They give it another verse with Owens blowing it out more on the final chorus. Then the With You lines uh, get wispier as Clark adds great flowing triplets underneath on the piano. He works the sax up into high cries and then gets to blow on more intensely uh, for some final soloing, echoing the with you phrase into a softer, mm. uh, lower ending. So, yeah, that one brought back memories too. There's, a, there's something about this tune I want to say. Um, I like the way the contrast between the, the whole idea of falling in love. You know, f we always say fall in love, like it's a love is a hole and I fell yeah. in it, you know? <laughs> and yet, on that line, could it be? I'm it's he's rising, you know. Yeah, and I've oh, always that's loved that. Yeah. I've always loved that contrast. I mean, I caught that when I was really younger, and it's, I think it kind of helped me to be able to, you know, hold contrast mm. in my brain, whereas everybody else kind of yeah tends to freak out. I think our generation is better at that because of songs like this that we had just heard that's all the interesting. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, track three, another name that was all over the radio in the seventies, uh, Burt Bacharach, Living Together album from 1973. This is something big. Now, the original starts with something like a nylon string guitar on a riff, but Owens takes it on the tenor sax, making it bigger and bolder. Uh, Clark joins in with high ringing piano lines, bass and drums come in, uh, giving it a real push. The original intro is short, but they groove out on it here, uh, giving it kind of a modal jazz feel until Owens bursts out with big sunny melody uh, mm. on it. Uh, Randazzo has a great back rack bass pulse 
Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. You know, if you know those Dion Warwick kind of uh, arrangements, uh, right. he picks up on that. And the bass and piano take the rhythmic uh, trombone counterline from the original uh, for a cool surprise in the arrangement. Uh, so I like that they pick up on these little features of the tunes and they incorporate that into their arrangement, obviously on different instruments uh, here. But those details are picked up a lot on all these tunes. Uh, there's a second verse with some tasty piano fills from Clark. Then Owens is up for a solo and he has really zippy double time lines. Some interesting harmonic twists through the chords here. They bring back the riff this time with piano and bass vamping out for Caputo to get some busy drumming time, gradually building in intensity with Owens adding lines on top into a final verse with some lovely final piano runs from Clark to send it off. Uh, so this is a really great arrangement and it makes a super uplifting mood. You know, hmm. Burke Bacharach had all those uh, kind of uh, fancy chords in his tunes in the 70s. And sometimes his arrangements right. were a little cheesy. But yeah. uh, the harmonies were always really good. The harmonies are good, and they can be, even if the arrangements are cheesy, they can be made really great. Yeah. I and mean, the content yeah. is really fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, track four, Beatles. Yes, Here, There, and Everywhere from... It's really almost a perfect song. In yeah, a way. It's course, really beautiful. This is from mm. the six, 1966 Revolver album, but it was still constantly on the radio uh, right. into the 70s. Clark here gets a rubato solo piano intro working around uh, the harmonies uh, with a nice flow. Owens comes in on the melody, still rubato, somewhat like the original uh, version of the tune, but with extra time for more flowing piano waves from Clark. They take the melody at a very relaxed tempo. Randazzo has a really good snap in his bass here, too. It picks up some lift on the bridge modulation. I want her everywhere. You know, well, that really just lifts mm. in this tune. And I like how Randazzo picks up the guitar riff in the bass. There's, you know, a movement in the original. The line goes up, and he does it on the bass. They work it through some nice modulations with a riff into Owens' solo that has an unhurried quality and picks out snippets of the melody line nicely. Clark has a solo with rolling lines that get kind of a gospel feel going to it. And Owens joins back in on the bridge and he carries on with the melody. Uh, they go through the modulation riff idea again, working into some more soloing as the intensity of the groove picks up to a nice climax. Then they bring it down softly, ending with the rubato opening phrase. It's a nice arrangement uh, with a real nice arc to the tune. Now, I'm not sure about uh, track five. This is a Cole Porter tune, uh, Get Out of Town. goes back to 1938. Uh, musical Leave It To Me. And there's been a lot of uh, versions by jazz singers, Ella Fitzgerald, Anita O'Day. So I'm not sure uh, what arrangement how this is fits inspired. into the album. Yeah, how it fits yeah. in. Uh, anyway, yeah. Clark gives this one a unique intro with an eight-bar piano start that uh, is snappily rhythmic and has some close dissonances in it. Bass and drums join in for another round, bringing the swing with a big bass walking from Randazzo. Owens comes in with the melody with a full-throated, straight-ahead blowing style. Nice accent hits by Caputo on his phrases. And Owens continues on into a solo. The tune has nice harmonic twists uh, from the main minor melody. And Owens swings hard and blows gutsy phrases and rips through a lot of double-time lines. Clark really swings in his piano solo here with great percussive left-hand chords, ending with some nice synced two-hand figures and some rhythmic play. And Randazzo gets a bass solo next, uh, working out some cool interval ideas into bouncy melodic lines. And Owens returns to trade eighths with Caputo, Clark, and Randazzo, and they finish it up with another run through the melody. There's a lot of nice forward energy here, and a great recording sound uh, comes through. Uh, it's analog tape, but it sounds... Uh, you know, it has that natural kind of organic sound to it. 
Trek Six, Frank Sinatra's oh, yeah. famous It Was a Very Good Year, uh, which uh, was composed by Irvin Drake in 1961. Sinatra recorded it in 66. Owen starts this one with a cool solo original riff idea uh, that traces the harmonic movement. The phrases are clipped in a cool way that kind of disguises the meter. Maybe it was inspired by the original, at the beginning of the original tune, I think it's an oboe, if, mm. if my mind remembers right, or it could be uh, English horn, yeah. but I'm pretty sure it's oboe. And uh, the others join in to work it uh, some more into the melody. They give this a great groove with uh, light drum work from Caputo and a Spanish-sounding ostinato bass riff from Randazzo that makes a mysterious atmosphere. Owens gets a good feeling of gravitas on the phrases that evokes Sinatra's feel and phrasing and i mm. like how he continues on taking the instrumental transition lines to the next verse uh, he gets some subtle modal embellishments this time and works it into a solo the groove is great in the bass and the drums and owens works up from seductive short rhythmic and later phrases clark starts his solo playfully here teasing lines working into some dissonant moving ideas and then great chiming two-handed chords and he goes for some uh, spanish kind of uh, modal tinge that's implied by those harmonies too. Owens comes back for another verse, takes the instrumental transition into another slowed verse that creates a dreamy kind of introspective feel, and they take it out with the original riff idea for an outro. It's a very cool arrangement, pulling out and expanding on a lot of the harmonic suggestions that are in the tune and creating this great groove uh, to set it to. Yeah, and in fact, I really have never liked this song until now, yeah. really, until I heard this particular, yeah. the Sinatra version, because I heard it when I was like, really, my my dad liked Frank Sinatra, so right. you would hear this on when he would be playing the radio, and Sinatra, there was a three-hour Frank Sinatra program, and I always thought this was really just too quiet. It was very adult at yeah. the time when yeah. I was a kid, you know, right. so right. I didn't, you know, right. and I don't know, I guess I've heard the Sinatra version again, I'd probably like it more now, but. Now that you're older. This, this really, now that I'm older. In your autumn years. <laughs> I'm in my autumn years. <laughs> At least it's not winter yet. Yeah, Jeez. not yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, track seven. Mm. What other big name from the 70s? Uh, James Taylor. 1976 right. uh, recording in the pocket and this is the title track, Golden Moments. So interestingly enough, Owen sits out on this one. So it's just the, the trio here and uh, Clark gives it a great ringing rubato piano intro. Uh, bass and drums join in and it gets into tempo. Clark stays with the melody and captures the dreamy feel of the original very well. Uh, there's some nice little moving lines in the bass underneath. And then Randazzo gets uh, the melody on the bass and he really makes it sing like James Taylor. Yeah, really nice uh, bass playing here. Uh, but he also includes some snappy rhythmic improvisations. And Clark gets a uh, solo with clear ringing articulation, really builds and pressurizes the phrases to climaxes. Uh, Caputo helps it swell with uh, heavier beats, but mostly kind of uh, simple textures and things around the piano. And Randazzo has a very settled and loping bass groove for Clark to work over in the final stretch as he rings out the notes. Uh, very atmospheric uh, kind of performance of this tune. Then another huge band of the 70s that was always on the radio, uh, Chicago. And they really changed their style with this album, Chicago 10 from 1976. This, this band named all their albums like one, two, yeah, three. What exactly. is this nonsense? Yeah, it's hard to <laughs> know what's on each one, you know? But uh, this was sort of marked the uh, ballad career of uh, Peter Cetera, okay. uh, the singer and bass player. And uh, If You Leave Me Now. And uh, so here Clark gives us the famous opening on piano 
and uh, Owens comes in on the melody. Bass and drums give it a nice push on his syncopated accents. Clark gets rolling waves under the start of the chorus, and Caputo has subtle mixing it up underneath. Uh, Owens takes the original instrumental break line in the lower register, pushing into an animated solo that reaches and subsides back into another verse that transitions to a solo for Clark. It's quite playful with some interval ideas and has uh, fun, hesitated phrases before getting busier while Owens adds backing lines uh, to the end. And then we're going to end up with another version of uh, Bacharach's Something Big. This is extended, so the earlier track is six minutes, and this one's nine minutes. It's got the addition of a really energetic bass solo from Randazzo, and also a piano solo from Clark that gets things going as well. Track three only had uh, Owen soloing, so this is longer version. It's worth hearing for these uh, other solos. And I really enjoyed this recording. It brought back a lot of memories of my youth. I liked how they paid attention to the little details from the originals and brought them out in the quartet format, uh, maybe in a different instrument line, but it showed remembering those little pieces of the tune that stick in your ear. Uh, each tune goes someplace and creates uh, new atmospheres, like it was a very good year, as we mentioned, and uh, energetic solos all around, especially from Owens and Clark. Yeah, one of the things that gets thrown into relief when you hear these familiar songs played without words like this is how musical they really are. Uh, mm -hmm. Harmonies and melodies are richer than you remembered them, because especially when you were that young, you just kind of thought of the the melody line, basically, right. you know, which is often hit, you know, the harmony was often hidden by the voice and the words. I mean, when you were a kid, you were just looking for some kind of meaning and you'd listen to the, the words. Yeah. These arrangements were really enjoyable. I think these golden moments of my youth were captured here as well. As he, he called the, <laughs> the album Golden Moments. Uh, they were golden moments for me, too. Yeah. Uh, the arrangements are all comfortable in that they made me feel good, is what I mean by that. And I enjoyed the uh, pianist playing on this album. He goes from idea to idea seamlessly, as though the ideas are all cut from the same cloth. Yet when you're hearing them, they don't seem to be. He finds connections which made him interesting to me. I kind of like to do this like in writing, where you kind of have these two ideas that don't seem able to be linked up at all, and I like to find a connection between mm. them. And this pianist does this. I found this album to be mostly like warm and fuzzy <laughs> and very enjoyable. And I grew up in this era as well. And I just want to say to Charles Owens, uh, thanks for the trip. This is the album, yeah. by the way, I would get on a CD, Charles. So if you want to release it that way, I'd be very happy. Yeah, I'd like to have this one too. It's, it's unique. Yeah. yeah, very enjoyable. All right. Uh, next, I think, I'm sure of it. We've done a lot of international jazz recordings, but we haven't been to Bulgaria yet. Oh, but we have now. Now we have. <laughs> and uh, this was an interesting challenge, uh, something different. And yeah. Well, you know, when we talked with Rudresh Mantapa uh, in the interview, I, I kind of asked him if he thought that, uh, you know, players would be bringing more influences from their own cultures uh, mm. and sort of folk musics more into jazz. And he seemed to, having done that himself with, uh, you know, Indian music, he seemed to kind of not think there was going to be anything new brought into jazz anymore. But I think... Mm. Uh, this is a very interesting melding of some uh, folk elements from Bulgarian music. And we're speaking of the saxophonist Vladimir Karparov. And he's on the unit label with his new release, Iglika. And so Karparov was born in 1977. He grew up in Bulgaria's capital, Sofia, and discovered music at an early age. I believe... Uh, his older brother is a pianist and composer as well. He started playing saxophone when he was 
12 years old, and he played as a street musician, developing improvisation skills, and uh, then he studied at the National Academy of Music in Sofia, jazz and popular music. And then he's always had this strong interest in uh, Bulgarian folk music. As he became more interested in jazz music, he's sort of put these two elements together. He's been in Germany since 2002, so for 20 years now, and uh, studied music there as well. Oh, his debut album was released in 2007, and then he had uh, another project in 2009 with a saxophone quartet. They had an album in 2014, also on Unit Records. And so I thought, well, this sounds kind of interesting. Here we haven't uh, done anything from Bulgaria yet. So this proved to be a challenging but uh, also rewarding uh, kind of uh, listen here. So Karparov is on sax here, Daniel Stowinski on piano, Igor Spalati on bass, and Dimitris Christodis on drums. There's also a Radio Bulgaria interview that had some insight for some of the tunes, so I translated that and uh, tried to uh, get a little more background here. So we're going to start out with a tune called Merak, and I guess this means uh, desire or yearning. Karparov starts it out with a fast repeating rhythmic riff on tenor that navigates a harmonic pattern implying different kind of modes. Christodus joins in with drumming and the piano and bass uh, with the addition of a new counterline on a soprano sax on another track by Karparov. That surprised me right away. It's mm-hmm. pretty thrilling and soon changes up with some new patterns and tricky syncopated accents. There's a new section with bass and piano, left hand lines, and a new smoother sax line that segues into a new riff melody section on both horns. Uh, The rhythm seems to have fast eight-beat feel to it, but the accented phrases make it hard to keep your finger on the pulse of the meter. Strawinsky is up for a piano solo next, and he plays hard percussive figures and lines, dancing around the switching modal harmonies. Uh, Karparov brings back the smoother sax lines to end the section, and the piano takes the sax riff figure for a kind of hypnotic backing to a start of a tenor solo from Karparov. He starts it out with smooth lines that get faster and more meandering, working into lines that become more Bulgarian folk music influenced with modal scales and these little bouncy ornaments. And that's kind of the hallmark Mm. of his style, these these, ornaments, which is- It sounds very folk-like too. Yeah. Like a, yeah, for Eastern European or Bulgarian in this case, I guess. And the soprano sax comes back in for a very folk-influenced and busy line together with the tenor. Nice work from Christodus accenting things on the drums underneath. It comes to a sudden stop with some trailing tenor lines, and then there's a reset to the opening riff again, and they build it up with soprano added and tricky accents once more. Uh, This time they vamp out on the final rising dual sax line to the end, uh, making an uplifting mood and giving Christodus some time to mix things up intensely around the drum kit. This is rhythmically very tricky, Uh, Lots of interesting Hmm. modes and ornaments and an engaging start uh, to this recording. Hmm. The next track, Camelino Horo, and this is dedicated to his wife, Camelia. Uh, The trio starts this one out for eight measures as a brisk but loose 6-8 meter with decorative cymbal work from Christodus. A ringing and bending bass under the piano chords, 
Kuparov comes in with the melody on tenor sax. It slightly reminds me of I'll Remember April <laughs> at the start. I don't know why. <laughs> he uses a lot of ornaments in the lines, creating a unique feel. Seems to be a 24-bar melody here. And then he adds another sax line together, and they work the melody with the piano sometimes splitting into harmonies. It's busy and fun. Stowinski comes out of that with a piano solo, showing a lot of variety and articulation from smooth to more percussive with some impressively speedy lines and ringing chimes. Karparov's next, starting with the smooth, fast lines on tenor, works in some of his ornament ideas. He really gets some burning double-time phrases going. And then the bass and piano drop out, and he gets really uh, ornamental over the quickening drumming of Christodus. Uh, he works it straight into a composed line with another sax track joining in on some really fast and tricky figures. Uh, Christodus beats it into a return of the melody with two sax parts this time. The ending is fun with solo sax and then solo piano phrases on the way to the end uh, in the speedy lines together. Track three, the title track, Iglica, which is named after his six-year-old daughter. This one's another 6-8 tune, this time a bit slower. Karparov comes straight in with the melody uh, from a pickup note. The melody has a longing quality to it, and it shows off his warm tenor tone nicely. Spilotti gets a run through the melody on bass with a ringing tone. Stowinski has a piano solo. Next, nice sense of touch, ringing high register tones, and some interesting rhythmic runs. Karparov follows with a tenor solo balancing smooth fast lines with more pleading higher register phrases. The bass solo working some high uh, notes with hard articulation and a cool rising gliss. Oh, then Karparov returns with the melody on soprano sax into some <laughs> fluid improvisations to the end. A real nice switch up lifting the mood of the tune at the end. So I guess you could say that the album is named after his daughter, too. Yes, yeah. Which is rather nice. nice. And she'll grow up and she'll have, he's got this yeah. album named after me. That's really nice. I have no idea how to pronounce this track for Zappelig Fuese. Yeah, my understanding of Eastern European languages is that the accent is always on the first syllable. So okay. anyway, yeah, so I'm not going to try go, it again. You can so. err on that side. <laughs> you, you have a better chance of being right. Anyway, <laughs> anyway this is a real fun tune. Uh, the melody has cool little dissonant descending figures in the sax and piano that repeat and come back between other phrases. It works into a really folk-inspired dancing melody filled with tricky rhythmic changes and ornaments. There's so much going on that I didn't even try to figure out the structure. <laughs> so I tried to hang yeah. on to what's going on. Karparov comes out of that with a solo bouncy riff idea, and they get really grooving with it. Piano and drums are back, and Stowinski gets an animated piano solo over the busy drum beats. Karparov returns for a busy line doubled by piano, and then Stowinski keeps the rhythmic riff idea going for Karparov to get some fun reed-stopping sounds and harmonics out of the sax into a solo of snappy rhythmic phrases. He really peppers on the ornaments here and then gets some burning high-register lines. Exciting stuff. Christodus gets a drum solo with phrases interjected by the others to push him on into another run through the topsy-turvy melody. You might think it's ended on a couple of phrases, but it's not done until Karparov gets a final rising line and a yelp. It's a crazy fun tune with a burning tenor sax solo. I call this actually a fascinating composition, too. So I guess I <laughs> picked up on that, too. And <laughs> you said you didn't know how to describe it. What I wrote is, this has a Bulgarian sound to it in the odd rhythm and melody. Okay, I guess that's as <laughs> yeah. close as we can get. Yeah. But this is one to sample, I would say. If you want to get an idea of what this album's like. The album, start with this tune. Uh, and the mm. solo is really intense. Mm. All right, another... Uh, tongue twister here tegedu dap dedu i guess you got a g and a d together with no vowel between <laughs> so, what's with that <laughs> yeah i don't know 
It's like to buy okay. a vowel, please. I like to buy a vowel, please, and yes. put it in there. I don't know. Kaparov uh, begins this one on uh, solo soprano sax with a melody line. It's got these real pleasing interval jumps. Uh, the trio joins in, making a dreamy kind of atmosphere. It has a cool ringing bass line under Stowinski's soft piano. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that it's a 7-4 meter here. Uh, Kaparov plays lyrically, and the melody has answering bass and left-hand piano lines. The next section of it seems to change meter into 8-beat phrases, and maybe something else <laughs> that gets more animated with the piano underneath. It comes down gently for a bass solo, and the notes really ring out with some cool sliding interval ideas and high register work. Uh, there's a nice harmonic shift into a soprano solo from Karparov. He keeps it lyrical and fluid, even when his lines get fast and ends with some trills before coming back into the melody. Adding a voice to the line later with ringing piano lines from Stolinsky as they repeat the phrase building to the end. Track six is called Sylvester Kuchek. And uh, <laughs> this comes from... Uh, inspired and written after he had to play for a New Year's Eve party uh, for people he didn't know. And he was invited by a DJ who he didn't know either. And apparently it was kind of a mismatch of a gig <laughs> that he went away like dejected from. But he got this tune inspired out of it, uh, which is another interesting rhythmic tune. Uh, two tenor sax lines on the melody. The first strain has three syncopated measures and then a triplet and ornamented line in the fourth measure. It's fun and dance-like. The next sections have a lot of rhythmic surprises with tricky rhythms, and uh, there's like a loping bass line that comes out of the sax business to start a solo just over the drums. He makes it low and bluesy with some cool glisses and rhythmic figures. There's another double sax line into a tenor solo from Karparov, bursting with busy figures. A nice mixing up of the beats by Christodus underneath. It's a minor bluesy Bulgarian hybrid, and he gives it a rhythmic ending into a cry back into another round of the melody. Uh, so another interesting tune. Track seven is called The Drama of Greek Drummer. <laughs> I don't know what the story for this one is, but uh, must be something interesting. Karparov starts it out with a rhythmic repeating riff on the soprano sax. Christodus joins under with clicky ideas and builds it into a roll into the entrance of rhythmic piano lines and bass. It's a really busy melody, alternating measures of seven and eight beats. It gets quieter for some bass soloing under the sax lines and it builds into a piano solo from Stowinski who really hammers it out with some almost Cubanesque type uh, rhythmic playing. Karparov swoops back in with a soprano sax solo full of tricky ornaments and rhythmic figures but some cool bluesy looks too and he brings it back and keeps the riff going softly over Christodus drum solo and bass and piano work it up more into some sax melody lines from Karparov and then we get surprised with some bouncy harmonized vocals on the melody line to a sudden ending. Mm -hmm. Track eight is called Refugee. It's a ballad feel with a four measure intro, ringing bass notes and piano in a seven four meter. Karparov comes in with the soprano sax melody. This one is really unique sounding in the upper register. It's pretty and has an exotic character to it. The phrasing is unique and the meter changes up on the way to a hold and then a pause. It restarts with a four beat feel, for a while anyway, before changing again. Uh, Stowinski gets a pretty and restrained piano solo before Karparov returns for a soprano sax solo, tying back to the melody for a bit and some more delicate improvisations and a pretty ending. Track nine, the last track, Berlinsko Horo, or Berlin Horo Dance, uh, kind of dedicated to where he's lived for 20 years. And Karparov comes right in with a zigzaggy angular 
line over accented piano and bass backing. The next melody section has shorter phrases with space into the final section of bouncy ornamented sax phrases. Stowinski's up for a piano solo, starting with a light touch but getting more rhythmically insistent and dynamic. Karparov comes back with the opening melody line into an improvised solo. He gets really playful here with ornaments and accented interval ideas. Then he adds a composed line for two saxes before working into more improvisations and another run through the melody sections uh, with a rather soft ending. And that's it. It's very complex music, but it's quite fun and engaging. And it really is a melding of Bulgarian musical elements and jazz. And it works well in an interesting and fresh kind of way. The compositions keep you guessing with the structures, meters, and tricky rhythms. And Karparov has a really impressive technique on the saxophone and lots of cool ideas in his solos. I enjoyed Stowinski's piano playing, a lot of versatility uh, shown. Spalati's bass is steady with good ringing out solos. And Christodus mixes it up with nice fills over all of these tricky rhythms. Uh, I had a lot of fun uh, listening to this recording. Yeah, me too. I, I like music that keeps me guessing. It's good for my brain. Okay. Another thing about this album is it has great sound quality. It's got rich sounding and it's warm in the low end. Uh, the Bulgarian rhythms and melodies actually add to the appeal and they're integrated so well into the jazz structure. To me, this sounded more like a jazz album than an album of Bulgarian, say, music, so mm. it, it does kind of qualify more as jazz. Yeah, I liked um, that piece of Zapelige Fuese with its, the, the track four that we said would be a great sampling piece with its quirky rhythms and odd approaches to solos. It stood out for me and was adventurous and still, nevertheless, easily listenable. I like the warm piano playing that you mentioned too, which drew contrast with the more active Bulgarian material. This was, Yeah, this is a really interesting record, I thought. It was a, quite a good call over there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty pleased. Um, I like that when we go to a, you know, a new country and yeah. uh, we find some original influence from uh, the player's musical background. And um, yeah, yeah, I think this was uh, a good choice. And um, I'm going to look for more of his recordings and uh, maybe mm. we'll find some more Bulgarian jazz. Maybe we'll even hear him live one day. Yeah. Be great. Yeah. All right. Come to Japan. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to end up with a place we always go to Italy. Italy. We love yeah. Italy, don't we? I love and, Italy anyway. Uh, this is the latest release from Alfredo Ponisi with his Regeneration Quartet on DDE Records. This came out December 18th. Now, uh, Ponisi is born in uh, Turin in 1955. He's got a 30-year career. He's a composer. He plays all the saxophones, flute, clarinet, piano and uh, his uh, bio says as well as being an excellent singer well you'll hear some of his singing on this recording as well he uh, writes uh, poetry and screenplays for theater and cinema as well and we've heard him before on the podcast also on DDE Records episode 74 Italian Explosion yeah. uh, he was uh, featured on the young and up-and-coming trumpet players Cesare Mecca who we really liked uh, for his yeah. uh, one of our albums of the year yeah. of the uh, real old-style blue note feel. But however, <laughs> Ponisi just seems to be like in constant motion. This is his fourth recording that came out this year, and one of those was a double album as well. <laughs> I had them all on my list. I didn't get to it. I said, well, we'll have to get to at least one of his uh, recordings this year. Here's uh, Ponisi on various saxes, tenor, alto, soprano, flute, and all of his original compositions on this recording as well. We've got, uh, now you can uh, help me with my pronunciations if I screw anything oh, up. Oh, I can do this. You, I, yeah. I know Italian. We've got yeah. uh, Gianluca Palazzo on guitar. Gianluca Palazzo, very good. Gianmaria Ferrario on bass. 
Yeah, I think that's good. Francesco Brancato on drums. It should be Francesco, Francesco. Francesco. Yeah. can't say it like uh, you do, but uh, do yeah. my best. I'm just remembering my days in Florence this morning. Yeah. <laughs> and so all original compositions, I'm going to start with a Boogaloo. Is it uh, Chichios? Is that how you Chichios say it? Chichios Boogaloo. Boogaloo. Yeah. yeah. Chichios is, a, by the way, a diminutive of uh, Francesco, the name okay. Francesco. But it could also mean he's chubby, but it doesn't have to. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, because if anybody saw the movie Luca, the um, the Pixar movie from uh, two years ago, like the one of the bad kids is Chicho, and he's a little chubby. It doesn't oh, okay. have to, but in the South, um, boys named Francesco are often like called Chicho as a nickname, but it okay. doesn't mean they're fat. It just means their name is Francesco. Anyway, there you go. It's complicated. Anyway, this one's uh, <laughs> got a slow and funky groove on bass and drums from Ferrario and Brancato for four bars to start it. Then Palazzo rings out some chords synced with Ferrario's bass for another four bars before Ponisi comes in with the sassy repeated riff-based melody with a nice husky tenor tone. It's a 16-bar minor bluesy melody. They go around it twice before Ponisi continues on into a solo. Ponisi keeps it relaxed and soulful through his choruses. The chunky guitar chords by Palazzo underneath almost sound like a Rhodes piano in tone. Uh, this mm. guitar player's tone continually impressed me through this recording. Mm. But here, just the attack on them is like keyboard-like. Palazzo's up next for his own guitar solo over a funky rhythmic bass of uh, Ferrario. It's really fluid and inventive lines, and his tone is rounded with a nice deep reverb. And then Ponisi joins back in for a couple more rounds of the melody to finish it up. Track two, Blues for Rashan Roland Kirk, the amazing oh, reed yeah. man who could play all sorts of uh, instruments at once. Uh, <laughs> and With uh, his mouth. <laughs> with his mouth, yeah. And I think he had a nose flute too. Anyway, this is, yeah, as advertised, a slow looping 12-bar blues. And Polonisi blows it on the flute with simultaneous vocalizations underneath, just like Roland Kirk was famous for doing. All I right. like the lazy hesitation on the last bar of the melody. And then we get a treat with some bluesy vocals from Punisi, all about Kirk's playing and, uh, you know, jazzy life for several choruses <laughs> with some stop time thrown in for fun. And then Punisi takes a couple of choruses on a flute solo, more fun vocalizations in there, and then he comes back for another couple more uh, vocal choruses. Uh, good fun and a nice tribute to uh, <laughs> Kirk's playing. Track three, Top Hat. This one's got a soulful kind of R&B feel to the tune. Nice slow groove from Broncato on drums. It's an AABA melody. Punisi blows some sassy alto sax on the bluesy melody. Fun vibrato and interval embellishments at the end of the melody there too. Palazzo is up first for a solo of climbing and tumbling phrases. I really like his relaxed phrasing. The sex joins back in on the B section for some soulful soloing into the last A section of the melody. It's got uh, an extended coda ending, and I'm not sure, but it sounds to me like he picks up another sax, <laughs> a la Roland Kirk style, uh, to double up the parts for a surprise ending. It doesn't sound like an overdubbed line, um, and it's got a kind of weird tone to it. Um, maybe he was in a, he was channeling Kirk's spirit here, but uh, that's just my guess. Is that a by the top hat? Is I guess I there was a I think there was a movie uh, with Fred Astaire in it called Top Hat. Does this have anything to do with that? Is this an old tune or is it new? I don't think so. I think it's his own composition. Yeah, because people don't wear top hats anymore. No, kind of kind of curious about that. Um, one of the complaints I have about DDE Records is they give absolutely no information about the recording anywhere online. <laughs> you know, um, they put the the musician's name. Luckily, they were on the you know, the uh, cover photo, 
but right. um, I didn't know which you know who plays what, so I had to investigate all of that kind right. of stuff, and I had to use my secret Chinese site to make sure they were all his original compositions. And uh, uh, so, so the secret yeah. Chinese site actually lists these things. Huh? Yeah, how do yeah. they? Where do they get that information? It, it rarely from? lets me down. I don't know. It must be I think like probably from TikTok, TikTok. and it's going to the government. <laughs> and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so there are some benefits to that. Yeah, anyway. some benefits for me. But uh, come on, DDE Records, get some uh, recording notes up uh, on your site. Anyway, track four, Funky Mama. Oh boy. And it's as labeled, something. it's a funky Lee Morgan esque kind of tune uh, with two sax parts on the melody riff. In the 11th and 12th bars, Panisi calls out. Funky mama, funky mama. Yeah. He does. <laughs> yes. They go around that twice <laughs> and then uh, one more time with a little different uh, riff into a break and a stop time for a guitar solo from Palazzo. He's got deep reverb and some fun harmonic outside licks here. Panisi is next for a flute solo. He follows that with a tenor solo and then a soprano solo. Milky, Pretty impressive, uh, yeah. Yeah, a long, fast lick on the soprano to build up tension back into a couple rounds of the melody with added vocalizations and some final repeated funky mamas. I wonder if he does that in when, when they perform live. Is he actually switching from horn to horn like really this quickly? I'd be amazed to see that. Really. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. He probably does, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Track five. Have to have them really handy. Yeah. <laughs> La Oca, which I think means the goose. It does. Mm -hmm. uh, Ferrario gets out the bass bow for some nice interplay with Bonisi's flute, a pretty flowing ballad opening. Palazzo has soft ringing chords, and Brancato has some wind chime things going in the background. Uh, there's a long pause, and then Brancato gets it restarted with a busy drum beat. Ferrario adds a pulsing bass, and Ponisi comes back with the melody, and now we're sambaing away. A uh, mm. nice interplay between the flute lines and Palazzo's added guitar lines along with his chords. Ponisi blows a fine, uplifting flute solo, keeping his lines very melodic. And the Palazzo's up next on guitar with a flowing but rhythmically snappy solo. They go around the melody once more, some final repeated alternating chords that Bonacato uses to stir up a big finish on the drums underneath. Track six called How Far, How Far. And this one starts with some kind of atmospheric ocean sounds. Then Brancato gets a clicky gospel-y beat going. And Panisi is on soprano sax here for the melody, which has short two-note interval phrases over some churchy organ. I know he plays keyboards too. Maybe he's playing the organ. No album notes, mm -hmm. so I don't know. But the organ really creates the atmosphere on this tune. They go around that again, this time trading the short phrases between guitar and sax before they join together on the phrases. There's an eight-bar bridge section before a repeat of the final A melody phrase. Palazzo has a delicate guitar solo with nice rising lines. And then Panisi gets a soaring melodic soprano solo back into another run through the melody to a slowed-down ending and some final ocean sounds. And the organ really gives this piece it's gospel atmosphere all right you read the title on this one yeah judita waltzer now judita is a woman's name judith, judith and yeah. is the judith waltz judith waltz and it is a gentle mm. waltz with mm. an eight bar intro ringing bass notes over guitar chords punisi comes in with the melody on a sweet-toned Paul Desmond-like alto sax. Very nice interplay with the guitar here, too. And Panisi blows a very breezy solo uh, with some nice control in the higher register. Brancato adding tasty fills uh, to build him up at the end. Palazzo has an agile guitar solo here with some tasty hesitation on phrases between other rapid-flowing lines. To take another run through the melody, with a little extended vamping for some final sweet sax phrases. Uh, very nice sax tone. Track eight, Nukes Fluke. 
Back to a bigger tenor sax sound on this minor melody with a Latin beat. Uh, there's a 16-bar melody section that we hear twice, then an 8-bar bridge that changes up to swing, and a final 8-bar Latin section that has a break for Panisi to start blowing the solo. Uh, they keep the rhythm swinging throughout the solo section. Panisi keeps his phrasing legato and swings out melodically. Palazzo gets a guitar solo bursting with tricky lines that get rhythmically adventurous, also quoting from If I Should Lose You uh, just before the ending. And Panisi returns for another run through the melody, and they bring back the Latin beat, including the sing section, and run it straight to the end. Hmm. Track nine, Il Maestro Sorride. Yeah. The master Sorride. smiles. Yeah. Sorride. The master, the master smiles. smiles. Yeah. yeah. A gentle ballad that shows off Panisi's warm tenor sound. It's an AABA 32 bar form, has a jazz standard type of familiarity to it with an uplifting B section. Palazzo adds a lot of tasty ringing guitar ideas underneath, and Ferrario finally gets his bass solo here, and he plays a melodic one with gentle attacks on his notes. Palazzo follows with a gently unfolding solo, and then Panisi gets a tenor solo, some really great soft phrasing and articulation. I like his snappy little triplet figures uh, in mm. those lines. He returns to the melody for the final A section with some extended holds at the end to make a lush finish. We're going to end up with Calypso King, mm. uh, a tenor sax melody over bowed bass, ringing guitar chords and percussion textures from Brancato. Palazzo gets some play on the melody for a bit before Ponisi takes it back for the final phrase. And then there's a pause. And now we're at Two minutes and 20 seconds in, and Brancato sets it up with the beat for the Calypso to begin. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of interesting that it, they delayed it that long, yeah. Punisi takes the easy bouncing theme into a breezy solo uh, with fun, rhythmic, and happy licks. Palazzo solos next with freer phrasing over snappy bass lines uh, underneath that sound really good from Ferrario. And then Panisi comes back for another run through the melody, and they give the rubato theme with the bowed bass a final reprise uh, to end it. So there you have it. It's an enjoyable recording. There's a good variety of grooves and tunes from funky to fun and uh, gentle ballad material, all composed by Panisi, who shows a lot of versatility, soprano, alto, tenor, flute. And I like how he has a different personality on each horn with a wide range of expression uh, that he suits to the material like a real sax master. Brancato and Ferrario do a great job on the rhythms. And I was continually impressed by the tone and inventiveness in soloing uh, by Palazzo's playing on guitar on this recording. Yeah, I thought this was a really fun album. It kind of made me think of Ramsey Lewis in the funkier sections and Lou Donaldson mm. too, and it's more pop kind of. Oh, right, right. right yeah. So like Lou Donaldson in his later years when he did like Alligator Boogaloo and things yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's light. It's got a lot of those um, 50s and 60s jazz kind of vibes to it. Mm -hmm. I was personally happy that uh, he's into this era and is keeping it alive. You know, it's... Uh, it was a fun thing. I mean, jazz yeah. can be light too, and I really enjoyed that. There it is, mm. uh, three very different sax albums to, to get the year started. And I think next week is uh, kind of following that very different idea. We're going to have kind of a potpourri of uh, yeah. things going on, right? I'm going to keep like in a, uh, keep us in Italy, though, because I think it's always important to be in Italy, mm. <laughs> at least okay. as often as possible, yeah. Yeah, in a sense. But we'll have other things, too. We have all kinds of... We're all over the place next week. Yeah. In fact, you know, we're still not... Needless to say, you know, there aren't any uh, 2023 recordings out yet. And I still have some 2022 things that I really need to talk about over the next few weeks. So we'll be hearing a lot of those, you know, along with maybe anything new that comes out soon. We'll have to see. 
We'll see mm. writing down and saving jazz releases right up until December 30th. I'm surprised yeah. people are still releasing things right to the end of the year, but uh, there yeah. were quite I mean, a few. I could easily go like until June doing like last. It was a good year, 2022. Yeah, really I was just good. talking about this with someone last night at a New Year's Eve party I was at. How um, the last two years in jazz have really been. Uh, really enjoyable, hmm. you know, if not, you know, kind of pushing the form forward, which I don't really believe is a real thing. I mean, just play what you, you know, what, right. what you feel is great. And you, that's what you put on, put out. But, yeah. um, so I'm know. going to, uh, well, I won't tell you where, but this week we did Bulgaria. We're going to have a couple other firsts uh, next week mm, <laughs> as well. Good. So we're going international to get things started. And for me too, we'll be going to Estonia to a, a recording that was released really in summer last year, but I feel like I have to get to it because it's so good. <laughs> we had, we mm. had to hear it. Yeah, you know, I, I never got to it simply because we were doing all those like themed episodes. I had it on my list. Right. I was like, oh, when am I going to do this? And then the months passed, yeah. but I'm going to cheat and put it in next week. So yeah. All right. So a lot to yeah. look forward to. If you want to know what's on that listening list, after you hear this episode, uh, you can go over to Deezer or uh, the link from Facebook and you can find all those recordings if you want to listen to them early. Uh, they'll be up shortly after this episode gets published. So. All right. There you go. That's it. There it is. First podcast of the new year. There will the be many year. more to come. Yes. And thanks as always. To Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And Happy New Year to, to them, too, by yeah. the way. To, uh, Happy New Year, Rich. To Fast Signs and yeah. his whole staff, really. Make us look good as well as sound good. <laughs> Two things that are not easy to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll have a big year of music coming up, uh, so looking forward to that. So check out those other podcasts. The promos are coming up at the end of this recording, and we'll see you for episode 97 next week gerald albright Rhea schneider charlie hunter duke robillard sean jones walter beasley steve swallow something came from baltimore is a jazz blues and r&b podcast and radio show and it's not really about baltimore subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. 